Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, do we want to bore people talking about how fucking awful the weather is in the UK or have people had their fill of that shit by the time this goes live? What do you reckon? <laughs> Imagine they've had their fill of the shit. <laughs> I read some post-apocalyptic, not post-apocalyptic, pre-apocalyptic um, portents of doom on the hot days. And I normally, I'm not like, a, I'm not a denier the rest of the year, but <laughs> they hit particularly hard where you're like, oh yeah, this is going to be it forever and it's going to be really shitty and bad. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think this would happen during my lifetime, but it definitely is. Um, I'm now like 95% convinced that the sun is the thing that will kill me. So that's uh, <laughs> that's a good place to be in. But um, yes, on a lighter note, people are back with uh, one of our best games of the different year episodes. These are kind of like our flagship episodes. Me and Matthew each do a top 10, counting down. Fun to do these. We've done 2006 up until 2013 so far. They're all available in the back catalogue for you to go listen to. Um, by the way, this podcast is supported by Patreon, patreon.com slash backpagepod. We just passed 500 um, uh, patrons at the time of uh, recording, which is really exciting. How did you yeah. feel about that, Matthew? Because I sort of tweeted about it without telling you I was going to do that. And I thought, I hope he's not bummed out that I, I didn't warn him this was coming. Oh, no, it's fantastic. Yeah, like, you know, super pleased people like the podcast enough want to throw some money. I know money is tight at the moment and that the world is very expensive. So, you know, I really wouldn't judge if you uh, felt like it was t- too extortionate to, to <laughs> throw money its way. So thank you to those that do. You know, for the people on the slightly higher tier who get the bonus episodes, I hope people are enjoying those. Um, we put quite a lot of effort into them. Hopefully it's not cannibalising the normal episodes. <laughs> I don't think it is. No, I don't think so. I hope people, you know the, the old what we've been playing episodes seem to be quite popular. So um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's 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 good. We've tried to make the whole thing like a bit more workable. Yeah, it's good. You bit you bit tired. You tired out by it, Matthew? <laughs> uh, no, no, not at all. Like right now in this heat, I'm. If it was like this hot all the time, I would say we should cancel the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's like yeah, another victim of global warming. <laughs> <laughs> the real victim, some may say. Um, yeah, it's going really, really well. We're really happy with it. So um, we've, you know, I feel like we've invested back into the podcast by um, hiring someone to edit our Patreon episodes to take the workload off of us. Um, you know, offering all of our guests uh, like a fee when they come in. Uh, we paid Rich eighty quid in the end for his contributions to the uh, Metal Gear Patreon episode because that went down so well and led to a massive bump of subscribers. So it was so long. It was basically that we recorded for like two episodes, basically. Yeah, it should have been two episodes, really. But um, yeah, very value packed. Which and is now- which is my way of saying all the other contributors don't get any ideas. <laughs> I felt particularly bad because, like, Phil completely carried that Destiny episode, but poor old Phil had only got 40 quid. So, uh, hey, take it up with my lawyers, um, you know. (laughs) So, Matthew, 2013, this year is a console transition year. So, uh, well, other than 2006, we haven't really had one of these kind of weird in-between years where you sort of get these launches that coincide with a bunch of, you know, slightly also ran launch games that are rarely... Sometimes, but rarely, uh, sort of like remembered as the the kind of classics in the library of different um, different sort of hardware, mm. um, and you also get the kind of like last burst of uh, sort of like the previous generation's best stuff, and it kind of it, mm. it happened less in the um, in the uh, with the launch of the Series X and the PS5 because games are a lot more like you play a more powerful version of the same game now rather than there being this massive leap, so. Yeah. I guess to start there, um, do you think it was a good year for games? And how do you profile this year in games? 
this year is a very Nintendo centric year for me. Like I was thinking back on what what my you know various opinions were, and I was massively in the Nintendo zone at work. I'd obviously moved up to London to work for official Nintendo the year before. I, it wasn't like I wasn't clued in on Nintendo before that, but I I felt like you know we had a, a lot of magazine to make. It was quite a quite an intensive mag to work on. Like I think I had a more balanced life this year. Because, you know, after I, you know, moved to London, started seeing Catherine, you know, I was finally not a lonely boy. You know, this th- that's the big difference this year. It's, it's the first year where, you know, I, you know, I was in a relationship for the whole year. And because of that, you know, I, I could kind of clock off at the end of the day and not think about things. So actually my perception of stuff outside of Nintendo is a little little murky right yeah that's um completely fair so you know congratulations to 2013 matthew on his relationship that's good um <laughs> please that's, th- not a, that's a weird thing to say <laughs> please that there's a, a work-life balance could be attained i definitely think you and i are cut from the same cloth here where it's like we'll sacrifice our 20s basically to our career and then like by the time you hit 30 you're like ah, i kind of need both or i'm gonna go a bit mad <laughs> i think that yes. sort of, that sort of kicks in a little bit doesn't it so yeah, yeah definitely yeah so yeah i was much more tuned into what was going on with um xbox and playstation at the time because uh i'll talk about this in a minute but i started the year working a playstation magazine then moved over to a multi-format magazine these are always miserable years to work on well they were i imagine because it was like um how could we find different ways to put like a, a black box on the cover like eight different times um right when there's only like three bits of artwork for it that are even viable for like putting on a cover so that was a kind of like a big challenge of this year um but the thing the funny thing is that a narrative very easily emerged with um covering it which is of course the ps4 uh would kick the xbox one's ass that's the kind of like big takeaway from this year but Mm. in terms of the spread of games it is pretty good i will say i do have a list of 10 games i really like but i don't have a much of a list of like honorable mentions beyond that and that's maybe a difference to to previous years is that the case for you or is it did you find yet a bigger spread my list may seem a bit contrarian in how much nintendo stuff there is given the strength of non-nintendo stuff but it really is just an indicator of where my head was at that year i I imagine our lists are going to be very different yeah exactly so which is why for this episode i want to dedicate a lot of time to our top 10s because i think they will be just they'll diverge so much compared to previous ones so Okay, so uh, yes, in these episodes, in the section one, we always do a kind of recap of what happened at the E3 that year, major events, that sort of stuff. I will say to our Patreon subscribers, they have heard me talk about this E3 in massive detail in um, in recent in the recent history. So while I will recap it, I won't go into it in quite the same depth as I have in previous previous episodes, just so we can focus on talking about the um, the best games this year. But those memories are behind the page. <laughs> <laughs> I'll recap all the key stuff, but if you want to hear me dunking on Don Matrick more, just go your four pound fifty. It will sort you right out. Uh, <laughs> and we also talked about it quite a bit on the episode that Jonty came on to, um, John Hicks. So um, that that covered mm. some of it quite nicely. Um, so Matthew, what was going on with both of us career wise this year? So you say you had a bit of a work life balance here. How was um, how was O and M at this point? We basically replaced the old O and M team. Uh, in the second half of 2012 and it was a bit manic and we were just trying to get the mag done and we had a bit of a a redesign at the same time and there was the Wii U launch so we didn't really have a kind of chance to to sort of properly bed in and just sort of it was almost too busy to to get a proper feel for like who everyone was and what everyone was doing Joe just joined the team so it was all a bit manic so this year yeah was more of a 
getting a sense of like, oh, this is what this team is like and getting to know people better. And it was a weird one because Chandra was the editor-in-chief and I was, I think I was actually listed as a deputy editor, even though I'd edited Nintendo Gamers. So I always felt like there were two editors on that mag. And Chandra was definitely a more traditional, official Nintendo magazine editor. He had edited it in the past, and he'd, he'd gone away and then come back. And I'd come from an unofficial Nintendo background, although Chandra did originally as well. He worked on Cube. And I felt like there was maybe a little bit of tension in terms of what we can do in the official space. You know, Chandra was very, very optimistic and supportive of Nintendo on, like, every point, where I sometimes felt there are times where we could like dial it back you know Hmm. i felt like we didn't need to be all in on everything but we've gone all right actually we you know we're quite different people anyone who knows us both will know what we're i think we value very different things (laughs) um i think chandra is uh is interested in being a cool person and i'm not (laughs) really (laughs) i'm surprised to hear this this is news to me um so that was fun but i you know you know navigating that and and i do plan to talk more about official nintendo magazine i think we, we actually plan to do an issue with uh, neil long who edited of o&m before both me and chandra rejoined so you know i'd like to talk more about like o&m editorial memories in that episode but you know working with joe Screbs, who's just brilliant like so much fun and you know I, I you know all that time on Endgamer I was always the most junior person on the team you know even when I was the editor there was no one under me <laughs> you know it was right. just people above me being removed right. so actually to have a staff writer who was really young and brilliant and hilarious was just so refreshing to have all that kind of banter in the office I loved working with uh, Gav Murphy as well who was like the video guy and was just constantly harassing me but we had I think we had lots of jokes so I told you about the photocopier thing on here this is where i started getting emails from the photocopier (laughs) of saying things like everyone hates you and it was like handwritten notes scanned in so um that's like a a hilarious indicator of what it's like to work with gav but um that aside i was still quite affectionate uh i've quite a lot of affection for that time (laughs) we started our expert super guide youtube series which was my first video project i would play nintendo games I wouldn't say I was playing them deliberately badly. I was just playing them, like, as I would. And then Gav and Joe would sit behind me and kind of, like, wind me up about how bad I was doing. And I would deliberately play up to it and say weird stuff and offer, like, very strange glimpses into my past, as I do on here, to to try and, like, confuse and befuddle them. Um, But that grew grew a very minor fan base of about, like, 5,000 people. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think I should have probably twigged that i was never destined to be a youtube star from back then testament to your sort of like good humor about yourself is the existence of this podcast i feel um do you have anything to say on the sort of raft of images of you that are floating around the internet matthew like the the ones that our listeners use over and over again to make memes i assume were mostly taken on o&m yeah i think so i think the one that i see a lot is me with a pikachu like head scarf i don't really know what you describe it as it's like a pikachu balaclava <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that one yeah. um which actually i think i was wearing that when we made a promotional video for the golden joystick so i was still on end gamer at the time you can tell where it came from based on how fat i am <laughs> um, like the fatter i get the later it is yeah um, much like um sort of you can know which season of friends you're watching by looking at chandler i would say like uh, <laughs> Nothing against yeah, Matthew very Perry much there. that. Yeah. The only image I absolutely hate, and this is a 2014 image, is 
there's a picture of me in a Pikmin onesie, which doesn't leave much to the imagination. It was so tight and I was so fat and I had to wear it because I lost an episode of Expert Super Guide. I, I bet I could make it through this like quite difficult level in Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze without dying, right. which I obviously wasn't going to do. <laughs> it was sort of set up to fail and then had to wear this onesie. And I really pushed back filming late into the evening because I knew it was going to be horrendous for me. And I just I thought if I push it late into the evening, it'll only be me, Joe and Gav. But for some reason, like Total Film and Alex Semmer on deadline. So I had all these people, I mean, literally like, you know, full of revulsion at my body. <laughs> so that's uh that's psychologically scarring and it's good fun to see that picture pop over every six months on twitter <laughs> yeah so please stop sharing that listers it's uh all the, all the all the other ones are fair game but not that one um, yeah any, anything that's my face fine anything that's my torso oh, let's let's not do that <laughs> <laughs> completely fair that's uh yeah very much the same for me uh around around this time is where i started getting fat that's my nostalgic memory for this time um <laughs> for reasons i'll explain shortly but uh yeah yeah can i can i um sort of float a theory to you matthew that this Ooh. is secretly one of the best nintendo years ever and i think your list will reflect this but i don't think they got credit for it at the time at all because no one was paying attention to wii u it had been do- deemed a, a failure by press already and so it didn't matter really that it had this quite amazing second year but i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that am i along right lines there wii u is seen to be sort of shitting yourself like the whole time it's alive yeah but it does have amazing games admittedly like now so many of them are ported to switch that people sort of see it as a bit redundant at the time we obviously didn't know that was going to happen at the time those games were amazing and you had a handheld division that was just going for it yeah the volume of games it's why my list is mostly nintendo games a real treat to work on a nintendo mag covering that stuff I and mean, it was just hit after hit and 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 also it was really nintendo coming out of like the wii years in terms of what they valued you know and we definitely talked about this on a recent episode the idea of like i think it was on the switch one actually of of kind of nintendo kind of just allowing kind of core games to be core games and not trying to kind of water everything down and make everything family friendly and it just means when you do get these sort of series which are kind of more traditional game affair um they absolutely sing and yeah like so many people like make the best version of their their game series ever this year yeah yeah no, I just uh, looking at the lineup of games this year. It was that was it. This is maybe like the last moment you see an amazing year on both a handheld and a home console from Nintendo. Maybe after this is not quite as consistent, but no, no, it, it definitely it definitely gets shaky. And I think you get into the period where they start uniting those teams and start dialing down stuff. I mean, yeah, 3DS definitely gets a little bit shakier after 2013. I think, yeah. Okay, good stuff. Um, shall I talk about what I was doing this year, Matthew? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm intrigued about this three-magazine timeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, on these episodes, um, this may bore anyone who's just sort of, like, seen it in the iTunes charts. Oh, best games of 2013. Then two blokes just yammer about magazines you've probably never read, like, years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we always do this to kind of set a bit of a background for what we're doing professionally. Um, so I... Started the year working on Play Magazine, the PlayStation Magazine, single format. This is the old version, not the um, the, the current version that exists. Um, so I was running this magazine as the PS4 was announced in spring of 2013. Um, and then basically everyone at Imagine who was more senior than me left 
and then they almost hired someone to run the other game the uh, the biggest games magazine there which was games tm uh from future i won't say who it was but um it's pretty well known amongst games industry people who that was at the time but um uh, i did not know who it was no. Okay, cool. I'll keep it a mystery. I'll tell you off air. It's not. It's not that exciting. It's who a mag that's now closed. Who was going to join it nine years ago? But um, that person chose not to take it in the end, and so I was basically like their only option because the editor in chief of Games TM left, and then there was no one more senior than me. It was weird. I was twenty four, and <laughs> everyone who I'd ever worked with at Imagine, I've been there since two thousand seven. A lot of my friends had moved on. This year, I looked around and found out found that I was basically like one of the most senior people there, which is quite strange. But it was nice because play wasn't that fun to run. I've talked about this before. It was a pretty, it was kind of like trying to be a bit lads, Maggie, in general and mainstream. And I just, you know, as is probably obvious from the very nerdy contents of our podcast, I don't really care about that so much. I'm much more interested in the nerdy stuff but um mm-hmm. it was the end of the ps3 generation which was bumpy and miserable for sony and it was quite hard work so moving on to games tm was quite exciting multi-format magazine slightly bigger team as in there were three of us rather than two of us um <laughs> magazine was bigger i think it's 148 page magazine um yeah it was a chunk of games tm yeah and it didn't have like that many ads in it when i was running it so it was a bit of a fucking nightmare to make um <laughs> and i would say that in general I wasn't as on it on the editing side as I could have been. I was very good at like the creative, which features should go where, what should be in our retro section this month kind of stuff. But I would say that the actual time I had to dedicate to editing was minimal. So the mag never read as well as it could have done, I would say. So I did this for a few months, steering us through like uh, E3 and like I say, putting many different black boxes on the cover. And I was definitely ready for a change at this point. I actually, I really enjoyed working at Imagine. Like it had... Um, a bit of a mixed reputation amongst people um because it was they didn't pay very well but it was actually like probably slightly more fun in terms of the people there than future was in my experience i think just maybe because of an age thing a lot of the people i worked with there were in their 20s whereas i think um a lot of people i worked with in future were like oh i'm 30 now so i'm gonna either gonna have kids or not go to the pub anymore um right and those are like the two <laughs> types of adults that exist basically <laughs> um so I did, uh, you know, present company accepted, Matthew. You've always been great fun. Um, but <laughs> so when all my friends have sort of left Bournemouth and it was just me there, I was kind of like, ah, I'm kind of ready to move on. So um, it's funny because I had a meeting at Games TM that sort of sealed what would happen next, which was when you would pitch covers at Imagine, you had to pitch multiple covers. It was like options, basically. Option one, two, three, and four. The idea being, these are the ones we want to have, and these are the ones we, we know we can get. And this is like an outside kind of shot for one. And mm. as an option four, I put down Lego Marvel Superheroes, which came out this year. As in, like, I was gonna, I was suggesting, oh, yeah, we could do a deep dive on Traveller's Tale, um, Tales, and, like, this is going to be their, probably their most deluxe game that they they make um with this license in quite a long time indeed it was probably the best lego game for a long time lego marvel superheroes and someone i won't say who said to me if you put this on your magazine you're betraying your brand <laughs> um and it was only on there because i was obligated to put four options on there and i kind of felt like by suggesting it and being put down that way i was being richly humiliated for the fun of it Ugh. and so i got back to my desk and I checked my hotmail, and I had an email from Tim Clark at Future saying, "Do you like PC gaming?" 
<laughs> and it felt like one of those things that slotted into place. Truthfully, I was, you know, I, whether or not that had happened, you know, no big deal. But I did like resent being spoken to that way. I thought I, I'm worth more than that. I, I don't make loads of money oh. to run this magazine. It's very, very stressful. And you know, I was living on Lidl for most of my career there. And it's like, you can at least give me a bit of respect. And so yeah. that was a kind of thing just went off my head. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm done now. I'm done. So oh. I applied. Well, that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's you know, but, you know, kudos to you for, for recognizing that and doing something about it. Because I think, you know, definitely one of my problems is I've had moments where I felt like, I felt that, but I didn't act on it and was just like, no, actually, I can eat a load more shit. <laughs> it takes courage to do it. That's the thing. It, yeah, and it yeah. also takes energy as well. And like, I don't I don't know if I have enough energy anymore to do something that drastic. I might be too tired, but I was like 24 and I was still I was still felt like oh, I was yeah. far from reaching my full potential working games media. So, mm. um, so yeah, this opportunity came up. Graham Smith, the editor of PC Gamer, was leaving. So uh, September... 2013 i went in for this interview at future um i i I, and i got it i think i managed to demonstrate i was like full of ideas and really enthusiastic and they maybe wanted someone a bit younger and sort of punchier coming into it um i thought i was hot shit i had like a copy of games tm on my ipad that i flicked through to show i was a contemporary magazines man that's embarrassing isn't it um (laughs) i also found matthew recently i found the covering letter i sent through for the job and it is so shit like so abysmally shit in terms of like sentence structure and paragraphs and the absolute waffle I put in there. I'm amazed oh, yeah. I got the job off the back of that. Yeah. So, but yeah, I went for it, got it, and it, it was like the buzz of getting it was just like phenomenal. It was like PC Gamer was the first games magazine I properly got into, so it was really really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, like scary. Yeah, yeah, it was because I was 25 when I got it, and I was the youngest member of the team coming in to manage the team and none of them had any idea who i was and they all had this structure of for years and years pc gamer was a cabal that you basically entered as a staff writer and then you like you would ascend very slowly as people left and that was how they operated for years so i think i was one of maybe two editors ever who came from the outside um and weren't just like grown in the sort of future lab you know basically um, right, and there was definitely an element of I felt like I was sized up a bit. Yeah, sized up is the right term. Yeah, so I was kind of like it was. It was when I when I got there. The thing is, I got the job in September, and I had a three month notice period. I imagine, which is actually crazy for the amount they were paying me. But uh, I so I had to wait until December to do it. So like my first day, I think was like eleventh of December. So I had to move right at the end of the year, which was quite stressful, um, and sort of like crack on with it. And so yeah, it was. It felt really exciting, but it was very daunting. And like mm. I did, yeah, I did feel a bit without a paddle for a while on PC Gamer. Like it took me quite a long time to settle into it. But it was exactly what I needed. Or I probably was facing a scenario where I would just leave Games Media and do something else, you know. So yeah, yeah. Don't know if you have any thoughts. It reminds, it reminds <laughs> me a little bit like when I moved to London for OM, which admittedly was in 2012. I remember thinking, well, this is like a new office. You know, I can kind of present a new me a bit. You know, I wasn't a figure of fun in Bath Future offices, but I wasn't also kind of like a terrifying authority figure. <laughs> um, and I remember on like the second day of being on OM, you know, thinking, well, you know, they still don't really know me. They, you know, they, they don't know that I'm a fool yet. <laughs> Uh, the two um, art, the art heads and the departed, uh, Will and Dale, were talking about 
uh, this competition to eat two pizzas right. at the local pizza hut. And I said, oh, yeah, I imagine I could do that. And uh, from that moment on, they called me two crusts for the <laughs> for the rest of my time on O&M. Right. <laughs> I see. Like, they both, they were like, oi, two crusts, they used to say. I think that'd <laughs> be like, fantastic, I've completely nobbled this instantly. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that nickname requires too much effort. Like, that's just slightly too much brain power needed to remember two crusts. Um, I would find it easier to call you Matthew, but, you know, like, hey, yeah. maybe this is just how maybe the how the bants worked in the London office. It was all popping it was off. Very, it felt like very specific Londoner bants. Oh, two crusts over it. It sounded like something out of a Guy Ritchie film. It's got a bit of the old oi white shirt energy from Peep Show, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, clean shirt, that was it, clean shirt. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um yeah, it was it was exciting. The thing is, though, I think like my confidence took quite a hit from going to PC Gamer because on Games TM, I've been at Imagine for such a long time that I felt quite confident in the choices I was making, how I was managing my staff and stuff like that. Whereas mm. I just felt so much more daunted by PC Gamer and just felt quite. I was a bit like on edge just doing it um, and trying not trying to get it right, and also trying to navigate working with a US team for the first time because I'd never done that mm. and they had a bit of history. Um, so I was kind of coming in to help repair that sort of bridge a little bit. Um, mm. They had like a bunch of great editors and writers, and it was about just kind of like joining up to make the whole operation, which to be honest is by doing that, that was kind of Tim Clark's doing, that is what has led to PC Gamer being this phenomenally successful website um, that it is now. So it was nice to be there and play a key part in doing that. But um, I think like if I learned something about management from this time, Matthew, <laughs> not to get too kind of boring and sort of TED talky about it. <laughs> no, it's, it's important. I think most people listen to this for management <laughs> We will get to some fucking games, don't worry. Um, it's that, like, people... I, I thought all it took to be a good boss was to be to have my editorial instincts and be nicer than the bosses I didn't like were. But you, you realise over time that being a good manager is all about being attuned to what your team needs in terms of progression and feeling heard and things like that. And I would say oh, that... that it? <laughs> I would say I didn't learn that lesson when I was on Gamers GM and could have been a lot better at it. And I would say it took me till my later years of PC Gamer to really get that, actually. So, anyway, that's a boring note over. But, yeah, a lot happened. See, I, thought, I thought it was about just learning how to stomach imbeciles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing that year, Matthew. Um, yeah, Oof. a bit. So, maybe I thought it'd be more fun than it sounded out loud. It sounded quite bad, didn't it? Um, it was actually fine. It was just, it was just, it, it was just daunting. And I was very young doing this. I didn't, I didn't know anything. Yeah. I didn't know anything when I was twenty-five, and I don't really I, know anything now. You know, I, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about people at Future who were doing much better than me, or were doing the same as me, who were younger. Yeah. Um, like I remember when I found out that Neil is basically the same age as me he may even be a year younger than me and was like editing O&M all those years while I was in just the absolute doldrums of being a staff writer and then gamer for felt what felt like 20 years or something yeah um I was like oh man I've, I've really biffed this I must be held in such low esteem but this is what I'm doing and I remember being on the editor's calls when you started turning up in them and being like Oh, this guy's much, much younger than me, and he's 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 not a deputy editor; he's an outright editor, and he's um, like on PC Gamer, which is a much bigger deal. I think <laughs> I actually think I was on those editors' meetings because Chandra didn't want to go to them because he was like, "Oh, it's just all your Bath friends. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to see me, so you just may as well go." <laughs> 
that's funny. Uh, that's funny to hear. That's how you sort of perceive me. But you know, oh yeah, I was like, who's this guy? I was like, this 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 guy's like dangerous, super ambitious guy. Oh, um, there's an, I... And then when I came to Bath, I was like, oh, actually, we're really on the same wavelength. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though because I I I almost wonder if I wasn't quite ready for it in retrospect. Um, like if I was, I did maybe need a bit more time to sort of bake in the oven, as it were. Because oh, you, you seem to know what you were doing. Well, I, I knew what the mag was and I knew how to make it good, but. I was fighting upstream because it was so hard. I had it harder than previous editors of a PC game. I had less staff. Um, mm. And so it was immediately tougher. And so, you know, you're expected to produce a mag of the same quality, but you don't have the same resources that they did. So, mm. you know, it's, it was re- it was tough. Plus, I had to panic about a website as well. Like, you know, most print editors didn't have to worry about that shit. I had to worry about this magazine's review has to go on the website to meet this embargo. And it was like a whole other thing to worry about. And then later on, there was a US magazine to worry about as well. So oh. there's all this stuff taking up my headspace. More fun things, Matthew. Did you do any fun trips this year? Because I had two ones to mention. I went on a really fun Lightning Returns trip to Paris. Never played Lightning Returns. Here it's quite a good, interesting, <laughs> odd little um, sort of like uh, Final Fantasy spin-off. But um, yeah, I went, went to a Square Enix trip to Paris. That was quite fun. Uh, walked around, looked at the Eiffel Tower. All very nice. Um, and I went to E3 this year for the first time, Matthew. And um, what was uh, your year like? Uh, I don't think I left the country, actually, because Chandra did most of the juicy trips. He did E3, and he went over to see Rayman and things like that. So, um, yeah, I was kind of office-bound, which actually I was I was fine with at the time. Um, did you go to the very weird Assassin's Creed Black Flag um, reveal event in London? I think I did. Was this, like, a, quite a fancy venue? And it was it was like a Mariner's Hall, and it yeah, was yeah, yeah. slightly traditional. And there was a very weird bit where Ralph Innocent, aka the Green Knight, <laughs> the poem. did a did a dramatic monologue about life on the sea. <laughs> except it was about half an hour long, and after five minutes, you were like, "Oh, this is cool. This guy's like pretending to be a pirate." But it was so long, you were like, "Does he actually want us to like sign up to his ship?" Like it, it felt like it, it was going like full method. And it wasn't like a speech which had details about the game. It was like all in character as a pirate. It was very odd. <laughs> this was, I always remember this uh, this event because I remember trying really hard to get an interview for Black Flag to like basically do, to take and write a cover feature out of on play. And I was told, oh yeah, we're not doing interviews. And then the PR turned to so another journalist went, um, come with me, your interview's this way. And I was like, so pissed <laughs> off by that one exchange that I never ever dropped my grudge against that person. Um, <laughs> even to this day. But that was like a perfect example of like, oh, yeah. So no, I do remember that event. It was a really fancy venue. I, I, it did seem good, but I don't remember them showing much of it. I think there was like a PowerPoint presentation where you saw yeah. you saw him swimming underwater and they were like, oh yeah, you can swim underwater in this, but they didn't actually show the game that much. Um, they sort of said, oh, it'll have like these famous pirates in it. Yeah. And they sort of said that thing about you'll be able to sail up to islands and get off on the islands or you'll be able to transition from like fighting against the fort in your ship to being in the fort and assassinating people and it definitely talked a good game but i i just mainly remember the very weird monologue yeah that was i completely forgotten that until you mentioned it actually but yeah <laughs> this is also when i kind of thought i guess i didn't think it was cool that they had ralph innocent there like um, just because this is pre him being in every A24 film, I suppose. Yeah, um, he's more famous. But back then he was just Finchie in the office. Yeah, yeah. But did he play um, 
Blackbeard or someone like that in um, in the game. I think he did, right? That was kind of the connection. Oh, maybe that's the connection. Yeah, it was very long. It was very like ornately written about like feeling the sting of brine on your cheeks and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, what is this? Is very this is very long. It was like a mood piece. Yeah, yeah. And the whole time you're like, this is great, but like, how many gunners has it got in it? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Right, Matthew, going to fire through this E3 stuff um, yeah. so we can get to our game. So, like I say, we covered a lot of this in our Patreon episode, but this is a pivotal E3. Um, the actual console reveals this year happened in two events before um, E3 itself. So um, people had a bad feeling about the Xbox One after they kind of revealed it as a all-in-one entertainment device, whereas Sony took a very different tack of, we've made a games console. The very clear narrative to me was that Microsoft had seen this enormous success and had seen the number of people using Netflix on their console and thought, okay, the next direction then is to push to push more in this way. It's the centerpiece of your home. Whereas Sony had tried that with the PS3 and realized that people just wanted a games console. And that to me felt like the guiding principles that led to yeah. this switch in fortunes. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, not that it was like I. Th- I still think it took Sony a little while to warm up to the message. I think the initial reveal was was quite dry, if I remember correctly. It was alright. It had like actual games there though, and it had like Mark Cerny explaining what the sort of like the the philosoph- philosophy behind the console was basically. Yeah, so, I think yeah. it's more that it's the Mark Cerny-ness of it that I remember. I know, but maybe I'm conflating it with. That presentation they did for the PS4 Pro, where he did quite a deep dive into checkerboard. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't quite that bad. The thing is, they were also really forthcoming about these are all the things these things do on the console. Like here's the share button, um, that sort of thing, um, and so right. it, it, and like that here's Destiny. Um, whereas uh, they actually uh, here's the Witness and here's Killzone and all this stuff. So they went front and center with the games. Microsoft, I think, only revealed Quantum Break and then said we will talk about the rest of the games at E3. I think that's what happened um, without re-watching mm. both of them again. So Sony did put games at, at the centre and I think just kind of won people round from that and people just saw warning signs with Xbox that would later turn out to be sort of correct. But like the E3 is where the 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 killing blows really happened. So you had Microsoft reveal first that its console was more expensive, um, was bundled in with Kinect, um, I would say there was actually kind of nothing really wrong with Microsoft's um, Xbox conference this year. Like they actually had some like really good stuff there. I don't think its um, its launch lineup was really any worse than the PS4. But mm. it, maybe people just didn't have the optimism for the future that they did with the PlayStation. But the key thing that happened next was Sony. Um, Sony said that the PS4 is, I think it was like £75 cheaper than the Xbox One. People cottoned on to the idea that the X, the PS4 was more powerful as well. Once it launched, people kind of realised that it's a more powerful console. But of course, it was the used games debate that really um, mm. lit a fire this year. So Microsoft tried to do this thing where you would basically licence a physical copy of a game um, and you couldn't borrow it without transferring a digital licence, basically getting rid of pre-owned games for good um, with no no upside to you as a consumer. It was, um, yeah, it was a bad idea and sony um kicked them when they were down they got an absolutely terrible response to this kicked them when they were down by um showing this video of um i think shuhei yoshida and adam boys of sony saying this is how you um uh, trade a game um, to a friend on uh, on playstation 4 and they just handed the game over and went thanks and then that was the end of the video and that got like 
I don't know, over 10 million views. All this Mm. stuff just led to Xbox being in a really bad place. So it felt like it was decided at E3 that they would lose. And then from there, it is basically what would happen for the next five years. Any thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, uh, you've basically nailed it. It just felt like the meme that killed a console. Uh, Just awful, awful business. Um, It's so weird because now, you know, seeing everyone dive quite enthusiastically into Game Pass where you don't own anything, uh, you know, is a you almost wonder if they, why they didn't sort of accelerate things to that point or, you know, e- Xbox's sort of vision for a different future, ha- you know, has eventually come about. Mm. Um, they just found the palatable way of packaging it up, I think. I don't know, just th- th- like that was a defining factor then, but now it's just like, who cares, yeah. you know? I, I said this on the E3 episode as well, but I think the key thing that exists now that didn't exist then is the existence of, like, first of all, every game is available digitally, which it wasn't for quite a long time on the um, PS3 360 generation of consoles. Uh. Um, it was like some games were, some games weren't. It wasn't always day one. Some games would be added later. And also um, the sort of Steam sale style sales that you now see all the time on PlayStation and Xbox didn't really happen then. So a lot of these games would just stay at like 50 quid and not come down uh. while box copies would. So people wanted that flexibility. It is a different age now, um, thankfully. So yeah, I think Ooh. ultimately it did, you know, Xbox took a bruising but it did lead to them being in quite a good place now um sony identified perhaps not at this point but they would eventually identify that strong exclusives single player exclusives particularly would be the thing that would um set them off i would say we're actually like at least two years from that becoming like the narrative of playstation yeah. um and there yeah. weren't there wasn't any inkling that that was going to be the case no because like there wasn't there weren't trailers for like Horizon or Uncharted Four or anything like or God of War at this at this point like that that messaging kicks in like I don't I honestly don't think it was until like Bloodborne turned up that it truly had a an essential first party game agree that's that's my memory of it no I agree I think and that takes eighteen months I think Bloodborne yeah, essentially I mean, uh, it's know. not a knockout punch that's what bugged me at the time I remember thinking you know I know Xbox biffed it but like. It's not like the games here are stellar. No, definitely not. Question: um, Did you play more than the first level of Shadowfall, or did like everyone else you just give up? I never played it. I just did. I, I, I just didn't. <laughs> Even worse. Well, like I had enjoyed Killzone two and three, but then people said this one wasn't as good, so I just thought, well, I'll skip it then. I don't really care. Like, um, also, this um, it takes me a little while to buy a PS4 because I joined PC Gamer. I bought a powerful PC this year instead. Um, so some of this passed me by actually. Like I missed out on the first few. Uh, months of um playstation what i will say though matthew is i think that what powered sony through quite a lot was destiny and their ties to that because what they had was bungie on stage showing the game and also that the dlc would be exclusive in year one to playstation for a limited time or something so it was kind of earmarked as the destiny console um Mm. and it was kind of a console that was about hey you know it's really easy to get a multiplayer game going and share what you're doing and all this stuff so i think that like Destiny and the overall goodwill towards this console just being a games console, being affordable, um, kind of being the opposite of the PS3 in some ways, um, easy to develop for, games run really well on it. All of that is what powers Sony through. But I agree, it's, yeah, 2015 at minimum is when that run of exclusives kicks in. It's a a while, you know? Mm. Yeah. Okay, so, Matthew, Nintendo at E3, is there anything that's kind of you want to share on this front? 
Uh, only this is this is the year they start doing the Treehouse, um, which is obviously their sort of like all day streaming from the show floor, which I would argue kind of killed the need to really be at Nintendo's E3 as a journalist because you basically had the people who spent the most time with the game, the Treehouse like localization team. You know, they'd put hundreds of hours into this game and they'd be able to play the demo A really well and B like tell you all this cool stuff that you couldn't possibly get from that demo from playing it on the show floor. Um so even though m- maybe that's just a myth I'm telling myself because um you know, Chandra got to go that year, and that's how I feel better about it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I was watching all that stuff from home thinking, this is absolutely amazing. You know, like, the, what we could have done on Endgamer where we did those, like, mad deep-dive um, E3 previews from afar, you know, we you know would have been absolute gold for this. Like, we actually did quite conservative E3 coverage on O&M that year, I would say. Um, but... Uh, yeah, in terms of actual games there, like they had a lot of cool stuff that was coming out that year. Wonderful 101, Wind Waker HD, they showed Bayonetta 2. They obviously announced Smash Brothers, Super Mario 3D World, Mario Kart 8, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. I mean, it was pretty stacked. Like, you know, I remember putting together that issue and it being like an absolute doddle, like just so many good things that we were interested in. Um, and even though Wii U was sort of floundering as natural console it felt like well this is like a way better lineup than we could have imagined you know yeah like it's it's not undeserving of that lineup but it's 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 kind of ludicrous that that console has that lineup <laughs> yeah for sure so um i so I, I i did go to the e3 nintendo area for this and like um i remember it's the first time i'd seen like what a HD Nintendo game would look like. I'd never used the Wii U before that. And so my first glimpse of it was playing Mario 3D World or Mario Kart 8 on the booth and being like, wow, like Nintendo is doing things with HD visuals that I don't feel like I'm seeing on the other consoles. And that that itself mm. is magic to see, you know? So yeah, mm. yeah, um, really was a strong year. Like when you look at that E3 line, that's just, you know, if a, if a Nintendo sort of like um, direct now had a lineup even comparable to that, people would be like, that was fucking amazing. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> worth looking back on, I would say. Just um, look at the kind of different sort of chapter markers in the video they got for this direct because it was just, uh, yeah, unbelievable lineup of stuff. They were leaning heavily into like weird Iwata memes as well. So, you had a lot of like oddball stuff. Maybe it was the year before, but there was the year, like, an act that he appears in the middle of one of the conferences just holding a load of bananas and looking at them for no particular reason. Oh. It may have been a Donkey Kong joke, I don't know. <laughs> Who can... It was very odd. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, but still, it was it was a good format for them. It meant they weren't being compared apples to apples with the uh, with Sony yeah. and Microsoft, which was good. They're kind of setting their own terms more than um, mm. joining the E3 fray and getting their asses kicked as they did throughout the Wii era. Um, okay, cool. So the last thing to note, Matthew, is that the Ouya launched this year. Um, mostly a kind of a running joke now, but they did actually launch it, and I think people only backed it because Sony and uh, Microsoft made people wait too long for the um, their consoles. So, uh, yeah, but oh yeah, I remember being a big deal for about about two months. Did learn recently it had a version of Sonic CD that was native to it, which made me laugh. I was like, okay, very Ooh. good. Um, okay, Matthew, <laughs> that's 2013 sort of roundup done. Should we take a break and then get into our top tips? Let's do it.
Welcome back to the podcast. So, the top 10 games of 2013. Me and Matthew, we both have a top 10. We will alternate the usual style, going from 10 to 1. Then we'll go through some honourable mentions if we have them. So, Matthew, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'm going to kick off with definitely the only oddball pick on this list. I would say this is a pretty conservative list, and I apologise, but it was a good year, and you'd have to be a contrarian to sort of deny some of these games. Um, so, at number 10, I'm going to go with Attack of the Friday Monsters, Tokyo Tale. Oh yeah, 3DS like uh, favourite, 3DS cult favourite really, isn't it? Yeah, 3DS cult favourite, download game, was part of the Level 5 Guild series, uh, which was an anthology of games. I think they were released physically in Japan, so you'd get, like, one cart and it would have four games on them. Um, But they got released, or most of them got released over here as digital downloads. Very odd, very experimental. Uh, This was made by Millennium Kitchen and a quite cultish designer called Kaz Ayabe, who worked on a social RPG series, the name of which escapes me, but never made it to the West. His whole deal is kind of like deep childhood nostalgia represented as a sort of RPG visual novely type thing really striking art style it's I'd describe it as quaint Resident Evil it's like hand-drawn backgrounds with 3d characters on top with fixed camera angles Um, but it kind of looks like you know you're in a an anime film and it's kind of got this very sort of gentle kind of dreamy sort of vibe to it very safe world Um, it's about a little boy exploring his town uh, where on Fridays there are uh, monsters appear on the outskirts of town having a massive fight and there is a basically an air of mystery over this story about whether these are actual monsters is it maybe something to do with the film crew who are producing kind of monster superhero Japanese action films very sort of whimsical take you know kind of coming of age tale feels like I wouldn't say it hasn't got, like, the hard edge of, like, Stand By Me, you know, or the kind of, like, adventure of the Goonies, but it's that kind of eternal sort of summer childhood energy um, where you kind of walk around this town engaging with the oddballs, sort of unpicking the story, and the main gameplay element is is a kind of card game that the children play, which is basically rock, paper, scissors uh, with a few kind of extra wrinkles. Um, I don't think you actually have to engage with the card game very much at all if you don't want to, but you can kind of use it to kind of, uh, you know, beat certain kids and get more information out of them. So... Like, there's really not a lot to this. You know, it's probably like a four or five hour thing. Um, But it's this beautiful little mood piece that I think, you know, I wanted to represent the Guild games in some way in my top ten. You know, this this was a kind of a, a sort of felt about as close as you got to sort of a Japanese indie scene on 3DS, um, like an indicator of some of the some of the opening of Nintendo's doors to digital downloads and digital-only games and being open to slightly more experimental things. Incredibly charming, only exists on 3DS. Um, so if you have a 3DS and don't have this game, maybe one to get before it is destroyed forever. Yeah, this is um, one I've had on my 3DS for literally nine years, I suppose, that I've never played. But um, (laughs) the Guild Games did come up in our best 3DS games episode with Screb. So if you want to hear about i think crimson shroud we discussed as well on there that's um, yeah that's that's the other one that was that came out just the end of 2012 i think yeah yeah that was the ff12 guy that one wasn't it yeah yeah i, I always thought this looked beautiful um isn't the um hasn't this guy also been working on an anime tie-in that's coming to switch did you just mention that matthew and i kind of missed it 
no, no. He yes, he is. He's working on a Crayon Shinchan game, um, which came out in Japan this year, I think, and has been announced that it is being localized for the West, and everyone's very excited because, again, it's it's basically one of his sort of summer holiday adventure games. Um, they're very hard to pin down, like what his games are. Like, I wouldn't describe them as social sims. I don't think... They're not, like, full Animal Crossing, but they're just about sort of simulating an aimless sort of summer's day as a child. Ah. But you sort of go around and meet people and and do silly little chores and go fishing and catch bugs and things. He's he's just, like, tapping into this, like, one memory, like, repeatedly. And, yeah, he's been given the opportunity to do it through a licence for Crayon Shinchan, which is, like... The little boy who's always exposing his butt. <laughs> yeah. That's all I really know about that, him. that is all I know about that character too, is that he's a very cursed little boy who will sometimes <laughs> have a crudely drawn penis shown in, in his anime. Quite, in fact, every, every episode pretty much. Yeah. And like, is it a bit South Park-y? Uh, I don't know, because the, this, this game would suggest it's like it is aimed at kids, right? But I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know what the vibe of that is. I'm sure someone will correct us it, on our Discord. It's, it's something I watched endless episodes of on like Spanish TV, and um, so I had no <laughs> context of what was going on other than like the animation. And the animation would just show this little boy being quite perverse or disgusting. So yeah, and then mm. when you look at this game though. You're kind of like, oh, it's a beautiful looking slice of life adventure game or something, and it's like I can't marry those two things up in my head. But I am, I'm pleased it's coming to the West for sure. Yeah, um, it's going to be a delightful mix of nostalgia and exposing your wholeness. <laughs> yeah, I've always, I always love the aesthetic of this one. I, I, I will, I will play it at some point for sure. Um, I think also Attack of the Friday Monsters, a lovely name for a game. I love that name. That's uh, yeah, that's it's great. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, awesome! I really wish those. Um, Carts with the the four games on one would have released here. That what a great little collector's item that would have been. Um, oh, it feels like the kind of thing that'd be worth like five. <laughs> yeah, there. you'd be able to like uh-huh. put a kid through sort of university with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, instead you'll have to get them from a store that is disappearing in under a year. So um, very good, <laughs> everyone. Everyone involved, well done. So Matthew, I'm a bit bored by my number ten, so I'm going to boot it out at the last minute. Um, oh shit! Goodbye, gone home. Um, <laughs> I don't want to talk. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to talk about you anymore because um, I just I can't be bothered. Like <laughs> we all talked about it enough back then. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. Oh, there was a lot of talk about the that walking game. simulator happened. This is a, a beautifully done passive game where the story was told through a finding different clues in a house that's empty, and then the you know kind of not entirely knowing where the story was going to go, and having some fun misdirects, and then really evoking a 90s uh, time and place all that stuff's very good but do you know what i kind of want to put in injustice gods among us instead <laughs> <laughs> of all the games to swap <laughs> the incredibly delicate gone home for <laughs> i'm gonna put the dumbest comic book game in here possible which is oh that's so good that's much more us. <laughs> yeah i think so so the premise of this is that superman has become an evil dictator type because the joker killed lois lane and so it's like alternate history dc and it's like heroes fighting heroes and stuff like that um by nether realm the mortal kombat developers um what i loved about this was like mortal kombat 9 before it nether realm included a very a very elaborate uh story mode only about five hours long but 
you know, would show and try and rationalise why all these characters were fighting before the fight started with like a proper script. I think the script was done by uh, Tom Taylor, who is a very well-regarded superhero writer these days, um, writes the current Nightwing book, Deceased, the zombie DC book. So he's got got form with this sort of stuff. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I kind of... I, just, I thought that story mode was just absolutely like so much fun and I just have I have such good memories of just powering through it um, and it kind of went to the effort of getting like Kevin Conroy to play Batman again um, did all these kind of like sort of rad attacks where like Aquaman would sort of drown people with his kind of like his fatality attack and stuff like that those moves would get even better in Injustice 2 where you see like Flash um, sort of like going through to back to the prehistoric age in order to slam a guy's head into a bunch of stuff. Like mortal, <laughs> like DC through the prism of Mortal Kombat, but very well done. Um, so yeah, really committed to its absurd premise. And even though I felt a mm. little bit cheap um, and rough around the edges, just really enjoyed it. Like an absolute 7 out of 10. Definitely Gone Home mm. deserves to place more, but do you know what? Fuck it, I'm putting injustice here. No, I think this, this is more Batpage pod. <laughs> um, do you actually rate their, like versions of the heroes like is there batman a good batman yeah because they gave you a bunch of uh, skins as well like i remember i was i was watching arrow at the time a shameful thing to admit but they had um like a green they had an arrow skin for the green arrow from that and they even had um Stephen amell the actor like voice voice um Ooh. oliver queen when you selected that that costume for example so they were very tuned into fan service they they did like they did create bespoke versions of heroes who were to make them fit into their fictional universes when necessary. But yeah, you, you know, I always wanted a game where Batman could beat the shit out of Superman, and here was that game mm. at last. Um, so yeah, yeah. Have you watched? Have you watched Lewis and Superman? <laughs> Do you mean Lois and Superman? Lewis. What did I say? It's Lewis. <laughs> Lewis. <laughs> it's Lois, isn't it? It's not Lewis. Lois. Yeah. All right. Well, Lois and Superman. No, it's Superman <laughs> and Lois. I think it's called. Cool. But no, I've. I've oh <laughs> fuck! I really fucked that name. I, I got every word in it. Really. <laughs> you got and right. That was good. Um, all right. Yeah. Superman. Have you watched Superman and Lois? No. I just. I hear it's like a cut above those other Arrowverse shows. Have you given it a go? It- uh, we watched the first episode the other day because it's on iPlayer, and there's there's a bit of quite on the nose storytelling in the first episode that made me chuckle. It where because they've got kids in it, is the basic setup, mm. and um, they don't know that he's Superman. And he goes into he's he's got having problems with one of his kids. He's very surly and doesn't really like his dad. And he goes in, and the kid's playing Injustice, and he's basically just endlessly beating the shit out of Superman. <laughs> Um, and he's like, oh, cool, you're playing as Superman. He's like, no, I like to kill Superman. And you're like, uh-oh, this is going to be tense when he finds out. Um, That's... But it made, me, it made me laugh to see that that weird nods to the game. It's so <laughs> dumb to suggest that Injustice exists in a universe that has Superman in it. That's the dumbest shit ever. Like, well done. Like, well done. And you put that in episode one. That's fantastic. That's, I mean, that's, that's good. That's, 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 quite... that's good crossover. I like, I like the... That's gutsy. That's quite fun. I hear they spent quite a lot of money on their... Um... Uh, they're set there to um, bring Smallville to life. Um, that was quite a big un- undertaking, yeah, apparently. So, yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll give it a go. It seemed all right. Yeah, our, our listeners on our Discord seem to seem to like it. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give it a go at some point. But uh, yeah, Injustice, Matthew beats out far worthier games because um, it lets you kick the shit out of Aquaman. What's your number nine? Uh, my number nine. I don't know if this is held in high in in high regard, but I like it. Is uh, Lego City Undercover? Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. I, I think that people do see this as like one of the top top tier Lego games for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, this is obviously the period where, like, Lego is just, like, churning out, like, hit after hit. I think the, like, the issue, like, before we reviewed this game, we had, like, Lego the Hobbit, uh, Lego... Uh, it was maybe Lego the Hobbit rather than Lego Lord of the Rings. And then there was this, and then there was uh, Lego Marvel. Like you said, just everything was going on with Lego. They used to make, like, four of these a year. Um, here's what you need to know about Lego City, is that... Uh, it basically ends with a character skydiving from space while a huge choir sings the word Lego over and over again. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Which I think is just one of the silliest endings of the games I've ever seen, and I absolutely loved it. It was, it, it, you know, before the end, it is a really marvellous game as well. It is a quote-unquote unlicensed Lego game, Um or rather, the license is Lego. It's the Lego City range. Um, and because it's not tied to any films, it actually frees it up to spoof, like, anything and everything. So it's got spoofs of, like, Godf- uh, Goodfellas, Die Hard, uh, all these different police shows. Like, it, it's it's kind of what if the Lego team weren't limited by one license. And I think that's that's really exciting. And it's genuinely very funny. And the parodies are really, like, neat and... There's a real mixture of stuff in there. I'm not entirely sure Goodfellas parody is going to, like, land (laughs) amazingly well with, like, its child audience. But, you know, whatever. There's, like, a spoof of, like, the tracking shot through the club. Um, (laughs) It's, like, pretty deep. Well, yeah. I mean, let's not forget, Matthew, I've mentioned this before, but Animaniacs had good feathers, which was um, pigeons who were the character. Pigeon Joe Pesci, basically. So uh, Just a load of kids who are like, oh, well, these pigeons sure are weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very aggressive pigeons, don't know why, but yeah. Uh, uh, as an actual game, you know, it's a bit of a kid-friendly GTA. Uh, I remember showing this to my then very little brother, and he was just quite taken with being able to, like, pootle around in vehicles, and you get helicopters and cars, and you can just spawn them and drive them around the city, which, you know, for an audience that couldn't touch GTA for, like, years because it was just so brutal, uh, I think there's something in having that kind of fantasy delivered to you in a way that you can play it um it's nice that they kind of open that up to people it definitely has like more density than a gta like it's still it's a city but it has that kind of like lego attention to detail where like every building has you know a puzzle or a bit of platforming or a kind of weird character specific gimmick to it um probably the thing you could liken it more is to like arkham knight in terms of how dense the city is with stuff to do and find which just i don't know it's like a constant just flow of little distractions um this is the only lego game i have 100 percented i collect like every you know hundreds and hundreds of gold bricks and unlocked every character and replayed all the levels to do everything like i was really really into this i just thought it was just incredibly charming i love the humor of it like i say it ends big uh, not quite god in space but in space so yeah it's a big thumbs up from me well yeah i mean you know the, i too had this i think i got sent a copy of it when i was on games tm played a bunch of it thought this was a a great match for the wii u in terms of like as mm. an exclusive um thought it was a really competent version of a gta style of open world it was a nice open world to be in uh like the main character i can't remember his name but he was he was he was pretty chase mccain yeah he was pretty well drawn like, i mean it was just it was just like I was surprised the confidence with which they went without a license and made something really charming and fun. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, it just yeah. has jokes. It just has like loads of good jokes in it. Like 
there's the film parodies, but just all the NPC chatter is just really weird and goofy. Mm. Uh, very, very charming. Yeah, I just put this on my Steam Deck, actually. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll play that on the go. That'd be, uh, that'd be yeah, quite fun. I, yeah, I'm actually quite keen to try it again, because obviously I played it all on Wii U, and it was fine. A little technically limited. Some brutal loading <laughs> times. and Frame rate. It couldn't like render the city quite as well as it wanted to, but they, they did bring this out and everything else way after the fact so yeah well yeah it was definitely a wii fixture for a long time though right it was like two years something like that maybe longer yeah, yeah. i remember we did a cover on this and chandra saw it and he loved it and i was this is one where i was really like i don't know chandra this sounds shit to me <laughs> <laughs> and then i was totally wrong like i really really dug it that's why you need two editors to uh, argue about what what is good and what is bad that's uh that's good <laughs> no that's cool I'm, I'm pleased to hear that on your list matthew that's that's really cool good pick um, it's uh, nice that your brother back then enjoyed it. For me, the uh, the sort of like um, soft open world game was The Simpsons Hit and Run, but we don't need to talk about that again. Yeah, that, yeah. I guess like every generation needs one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Probably Fortnite these days, isn't it? Um, just drive a mech around or whatever the fuck you do in that game. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a mode, isn't it? Do they have mechs in it or something? <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> Probably. I do sound like a grandpa saying that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a child-friendly game where everyone's like John Wick. <laughs> Someone did say to me, "It's like it is. It is like if Ready Player One was really stupid. That's kind of what Fortnite is. Like it's just like yeah, basically just yeah, like Ariana Grande's and John Wick's having fights essentially." Um, so my number nine, Matthew, is Metro Last Light. Oh, I I had this on my list for the longest time, and then I bumped it out. Oh, okay, interesting. Because um, I I did think because I can't remember it as the specifics of it that well these days um in terms of like key moments but i do remember when you uh, go to the surface and explore an airplane and then you find a black box then it shows you a flashback of what happened on the airplane as the nukes went off that set up the game so uh, for people who don't know this is a sequel to metro 2033 and yes the whole thing is that like you're basically a, a a sort of nuclear apocalypse has happened in Russia and um, in Moscow. People are using the metro systems as a kind of like um, living quarters, but um, the kind of irradiated sort of wasteland has led to all of these mutated creatures sort of um, stalking the place. And um, and there's like uh, generally speaking, it's about it's a shooter shoot series about survival. You're always short on bullets. That's the whole thing in this game. Like bullets are like essentially a currency. There aren't that many of them around, mm. so you're not going around spraying things down. What I love about this um, this series is it's kind of like half-life-ish first-person storytelling and like exploring mm. environments and um, seeing those little stories play out. So when you go to like settlements in this, um, how those are depicted just was really richly done. I always thought these, these games punched massively above their weight in terms of like they were clearly not big budget games, but those devs sure know how to make things look fucking amazing. Um, and mm. this, I thought, just refined the mechanics of the first game like i think it had slightly better stealth in it the action was better it was just more competently drawn better paced um you really 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 liked it and so yeah this series has got a special place i feel like it's no one's favorite series matthew but these games are all all rock solid and always available on basically everything any thoughts yeah i i think this is a legit really good series um i must admit i came to it with the remakes on the next gen so, like, an extra level of sort of prettiness. Is it Redux? Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I loved uh, Exodus as well. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I'm really into that. Um, but, yeah, this one, yeah. I mean, m- more of exploring those tunnels, but exploring different bits of the culture. If I remember correctly, the second one had a little bit more of, like, the rival factions in it. Because in those tunnels, there are sort of, like, extreme right-wingers and extreme left-wingers, and there's, like, tension between them, and... 
you can go into like an underground station which is kind of like full it's like fascist central and um you know i I found the idea that all these like mad splinter groups all lived in in these same kind of cramped conditions and what they all make of the same cramped conditions you know what does like a nazi tube station look like compared to just sort of a survivor's tube station and yeah the little trips above ground um i think some people say this one's a bit more like scripted and a bit more like handhold even the first but uh, for me like they're really good at that stuff so i didn't really have a problem yeah that was that was kind of what i dug about it is it just felt a a bit more a bit more like a modern game i suppose like it was mm. like i think it does have a dynamic weather system but it doesn't matter really because you do almost play it half-life style where you are like you are following a critical path and you are trying to get to mm. the next place it's not really a it's not a game i don't really see the i suppose this, i suppose Exodus does have a bit of this but i don't really see it as like it's pretending to be an immersive sim do you know what i mean it's like a very specific type of yeah. shooter essentially narrative shooter you know yeah, Exodus is like a whole. It's sort of a whole other thing unto unto itself, and like I'm looking forward to chatting about that when we eventually get to that 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 episode. But um, yeah, that that like definitely kind of one of the very few series kind of carrying the sort of Valve uh, kind of way of doing things in terms of first person like narrative driven adventures. Uh, this is really cool. Yeah, I can't wait to see what they make next because yeah, I, I've actually only ever played Exodus that preview event we went to, Matthew, but um I was very impressed by what I did play, so I should go back and uh, go through that. It was uh, really, really cool. So what's your number eight? Uh, my number eight is The Legend of Zelda a Link Between Worlds. Ah, okay. Yep. Did uh, Which yeah. It, not on your list? Not on my list. No, I I am denied about this. I think the perception is that I'm super, super down on this game, <laughs> which isn't true. I, I put it quite low in my Zelda rankings, but it's still a Zelda game, uh, and this has a lot of charm. Um, my new hot take is, is this the new Super Mario Brothers of Zeldas? Um, <laughs> in that it's kind of happy to play the hits, but it's still expertly made, and you can't really deny that. Um, it's a definite nostalgia play in that it's you know, a direct sequel to Link to the Past and is set in that version of Hyrule and also has a dual world mechanic here. It's flipping between Hyrule and Low Rule rather than just the traditional light and dark world of Link between uh, uh, Link to the Past. Unfortunately, I would say the similarities opens it up to some criticism in that, like, A Link to the Past just has way more atmosphere and probably a, a lot more bigger memories attached to it. And this game is, like weirdly like visually it's kind of weirdly sterile it's got really nice 3d to it but it definitely doesn't have any way near the same kind of identity as as a link to the past and you are constantly reminded of that because it is the same world Agreed. um but you know not to be too down on that that nostalgia play like i say you know it has like an inn where you can go to it and they play uh acoustic covers of link to the past music which fucking rocks like one of my very clear happy memories of this year was uh, playing my copy of this in kind of very dingy November um, and just listening to these little kind of like whistle renditions of old tunes and being incredibly happy and thinking like, oh, these moments are like, you know, that's a 10 out of 10 Zelda moment for me. It has one great mechanic in the ability to merge into walls as a painting. Um, it's the kind of idea that you could build an entire game on here. It's just one part of, of a much bigger thing, and that's, that's so often the Nintendo way. And I think the dungeons individually make 
really nice use of the items. They find new uses for the old classics. You know, there's new stuff on the hookshot, uh, the fire rod, a sand rod, all these kind of things. Uh, you know, any time a Zelda game squeezes a drop more fun out of something like a hookshot, I'm always impressed because they've really done those things to death. Um, but I would say it never quite escapes like the structural flaw that the dungeons are designed to be played in any order and it does this by letting you rent the items you don't find the items inside the dungeons this time and because of that uh, they never really know what equipment you've got going into a dungeon so they they can only build those dungeons around those single weapons i mentioned this actually in our hall of fame it's a similar problem ori has um I think this is an example of the podcast eating itself, because I think when I talked about Ori, I talked about Link Between Worlds, <laughs> and now we're just trapped in this endless <laughs> reference to each other. It, would, it was always um, going to happen eventually, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the heat. Normally, I'd, yeah, I wouldn't let that happen. <laughs> um, also, like, a really unchallenging game, uh, which is odd, because, like, I, I still remember Link to the Past as being brutally difficult, and I don't think it's just the age when I encountered them. I think modern Nintendo, it's just much simpler, much kinder. It wants you to get through to the end. And so, yeah, like, you know, mechanically brilliant. I think when you're in the dungeons just doing the puzzles, really great fun. Yeah, a few big kind of, like, nostalgia bombs going off, which I really like. I think there's enough in there that this still holds up as, like, an essential 3DS game, even if, like, it's quite far from, like, an all-time classic, which Zelda's arguably should be. I, I appreciate you making a case for it, because it didn't make your top ten in that episode, did it? So... I don't know, it didn't. I don't know if Link to the Past did either. No, it didn't. And you... <laughs> which was the spicier That take. was the one you kind of had to apologise for. But I think everyone got it when they listened to, like, the, your picks and what your criteria was. Yeah. I will say for the the thing you say about how they'll... At the pub, they'll play the acoustic version of the tunes. Like, that is something you can do in the first, like, ten minutes of the game, basically. So, um, arguably, yeah. it peaks in the first ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't actually... Yeah, like, it just... No, yeah, go ahead. I think it's definitely... The fact that it is just like a like a you know a direct remake and it is the same world, like that robs it of a lot of discovery. Because even though it puts twists on it, you're like, oh yeah, it's that thing. And the whole thrill of Zelda is really discovering something new. Like it's it's why I worry a little bit for like Breath of the Wild two. Like there's a version of Breath of the Wild two where they lean so heavily on the same Hyrule, and it it just it just wouldn't work for me. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we shall see. That's fair. Uh, there was nothing about this that truly captured my imagination when I played it. I'll be honest, including the wall stuff, which I didn't massively click with. But I, I, I don't think I got deep enough into it to, to truly be authoritative in saying that. But what, what I will say is, yeah. I did go and put the 3D effect on after you said at some point, "Oh, you should see what this looks like in 3D," because while the kind of like the actual 3D like sort of uh, renders the characters in the game in there like the art style isn't isn't top tier zelda the um with the 3d effect on it kind of is um it's sort of like it, the art style is built for that so if you play on a 2ds you you lose that and kind of you don't exactly see what they're going for visually but it is designed to be played in 3d you know so um mm. yeah i think that's a fair point um yeah definitely yeah okay good uh look at me saying definitely agreeing with my own point <laughs> Very good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I agree with myself. <laughs> All right, then. Um, so, uh, very good, Matthew. Moving on, then, uh, to my number eight, which is the Stanley Parable. So, 
I discussed this on our Indie Games Hall of Fame Volume 2 episode. So this, I think, was like a, a sort of mod that became a full game. It's a game where you wait, play as uh, Stanley, this guy in an office. There is a narrator who is telling you what to do. And um, you can follow what the narrator says, or you can start deviating from where, where the narrator is ordering you in order to um, find different outcomes in the game. Each run of the game is about 10 minutes long, something like that. This is a game about finding as many endings as you can. And you know, it's the theme of it is about about choice. You are kind of an office worker. You, you kind of it suggests that you you live a dull life, and then the the endings you can uncover. Let's think. How much of this should I spoil? Because there is a new version of this game out now, which ho- apparently has like a whole hours more content to find. So I feel like spoiling the old Stanley Parable isn't so bad. I think that's fine. Yeah. Um, so probably the most novel one is where the narrator will take you to different game settings in order to impress you. So um takes you to like a Minecraft, for example, <laughs> and it looks like Minecraft, or takes you to I think Portals, one of them as well. Um, and it looks like Portals. So um it'll do things like that, or it will show you like um it'll give you a kind of dystopian ending where you'll see all these screens where all the people like Stanley are being observed by this like, you know, omnipotent force and stuff like that. Then there's this one where Stanley <laughs> will just walk out of the office and die. Um there's like loads of different possibilities like this. There's one where you can open the window at the very start of the game where you're in the office, climb out into the white space, and then the narrator will start talking about the fact that you're in a part of the game you shouldn't be in. And like things like that, basically. It's a, like a toy box that's designed to be broken with a kind of narrative framework. Ooh. Really, just so, so good. I have not played the new edition, but I've got it on my Steam Deck. Definitely going to play it before we get to our Game of the Year episode, because everyone says it's fucking fantastic, which I, I, I believe. Yeah, uh, any, anything to share on this one, Matthew? No, only that I need to dig more into it because uh, you don't really know where to draw a line with it, I find, mm. you know? Because you're doing this stuff and, it, you know, it keeps giving you new stuff and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, very good. And after, But then after a while you're like, you know, is there some stuff like you have to see? You know, it's not, it's not how do you finish it per se, but how do you, you know... How do you know when to call it a date? It's unbearable. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And I think for most people, it's like, I've found 75% of the content and I'm fine now. I'll move on. Um, yeah, right. It's a bit like watching Bandersnatch on Netflix. Um, you know, <laughs> kind of like, uh, it's yeah. like oh, I'll look at like a, a sort of like a flow graph and then see which of them I've seen and how much of it I should still go and see. It's a bit of that to it. Um, but yeah, I talked about it otherwise on that episode. But yeah, Stanley Parable, sort of, of all the first-person narrative-y things that were happening at this time, I think this remains the, the most special to me. And um, This one didn't get Ooh. kicked out of the list by Injustice Gods Among Us. So well, what Very great good. praise for those developers. <laughs> <laughs> What's the number seven, Matthew? My number seven is Luigi's Mansion 2. Ah, not on my list, uh, but I do like it. Yeah, uh, this is the 3DS sequel to a game which I thought was fine. I thought Luigi's Mansion was you know, a beautiful thing on GameCube and it made me very excited about, you know, what this new generation of Nintendo graphics would look like. But I found it mechanically there wasn't much there, you know, there wasn't sort of much going on um, sort of under the hood. And I actually think it makes a lot more sense as a handheld game um, because it is so mechanically simple. I think like dipping in for like little blasts and maybe within those blasts, seeing a couple of new jokes or, uh, you know, a little new pu- puzzle mechanic. This this game is just sort of designed around 10-minute runs. Um, you know, I, I thought that at the time, 
having played Luigi's Mansion 3, I, I'm willing to double down on that stance. I think 3 is a like really gorgeous game, but it, it just really struggles to cover up the fact that there just isn't much to Luigi's Mansion. You shine a torch at things, then you vac them up and you move the analog stick in the other direction. You know, really all they can do is throw more bespoke animations and like slapstick gags, and there has to be a limit to those. And just from a sort of production budget point of view, um, but here, yeah, just short shot bursts. You know, you can't really get too bored of it in in that in that time. Um, another brilliant match for 3DS. I think a huge amount is lost if you don't play this in 3D. Uh, it has this sort of doll's house aesthetic anyway, where you're looking at a cross section of a mansion, looking into these little dioramas. Obviously, in 3D, they've got amazing depth, and um, it's graphically like a, a really great, great looking game. Uh, I like the fact that it has different mansions that kind of give it different change of pace or um, like different mechanics going on in different places. Um, again, something 3 does with each floor being a different theme, but actually there, I, I just got a bit tired of it by the end here. I think there's like five mansions or something, and that's it just hits the sweet spot for me in a way that I think 1 and, one and 3 didn't. I also got incredibly stuck doing a guide for this on M about where to find all the hidden gems. Um, I couldn't find one of the hidden gems, and I had to send a very um, grasping email to, um, is it Next Level Games, I think, right. saying, how do I find the gem? <laughs> and then their like CEO sent me an email back telling me, which was nice. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> good for him. <laughs> I didn't go through official channels on that one. Um yeah, also the game which uh, pissed off Yuji Naka uh, when I took too long playing the demo at E3 and he stood behind me huffing in the queue. What a huffy man he is. <laughs> yep, um, so, you know, one day maybe he'll erase you from a photo, Matthew, who knows? That's uh... I just, if, um, I, honestly, that gave me such an insight to the guy. <laughs> like, if he, got, if he got stroppy about being in a queue, he's probably a difficult person, I would imagine, to work with. <laughs> A very uh, sobering thought. I will ask Matthew, out of the new mechanics they added to this, which do you think are the most kind of memorable? Like, what what kind of stays with you from this one that differentiates it from the first game? I mean, you've got the different sort of like uh, you've got like the dark light, which sort of reveals sort of hidden layers to things, which is which is fine. Um, there's some there's a couple of little stretches where you kind of co-op with Toad. We sort of suck a little Toad up and then sort of ping him about. That's quite cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, just little things like that that give give stretches of this their own identity. And it's, you know, again, something 3 tries to do. But, um, yeah, I'm not saying they're, like, deep mechanics, but they're enough to distract from the fact that you're otherwise just going into another room and pointing a torch at things and sucking them up. Yeah, this is definitely one of the nicest-looking 3DS games. Um, I think that I, I, I sort of agree where... I mean, it's weird, first of all, that there's, like, 12 years between the two games. That's quite strange when you think about it. Um mm. But um, and obviously, next level games had nothing to do with that first one, so they did a very good job of taking that base and um, building something quite imaginative on top of it. Because I agree, the first uh, Luigi's Mansion is a it's a, a fine little little thing, probably a seven out of ten, but you know, looked mm. amazing on the GameCube with its lovely lighting and stuff. Um, but you know, quite quite shallow. It's over, and then you don't really particularly have a desire to play another one. So the fact they managed to build a much more elaborate sequel that, that was extremely good on a handheld was um yeah amazing you can see why Ooh. nintendo snapped them up after this can't you that makes sense yeah very good matthew you sound so very surprised <laughs> well it's, it's more than like i couldn't quite dig enough into my memories to put this on my list but i did like it i did review it for sci-fi now it's like significantly longer than the first one as well right yeah yeah, yeah. there's like a reasonable amount because you've got 
yeah, you've got like each each of the different mansions you go into, like it kind of open. They've almost got like like mini Metroid vibes to them in that you kind of do several missions in each, and each mission kind of like opens up new bits of it or lets you dig deeper into other bits. So it has some fun where you repeat certain stretches and like sometimes there'll be ghosts or sometimes they'll behave differently, and but then you also like gradually push out into them. So yeah, it's kind of I guess that is the structure of the original Luigi's Mansion, but here. You you get to do it like five times over so mm. yeah it really does have the, the best of the series but sort of slightly slightly sort of shrunk down in, into a uh yeah more enjoyable form. yeah that sounds good because you get fucking sick of that first mansion in the first game after a while so uh yes well done um here's to variety very good are you ready for a spicy number seven matthew oh yeah the last of us oh okay that... not on my list not on your list that's even spicier um <laughs> Shall we start? I mean, it's it's no Lego City <laughs> undercover. <laughs> so I'll talk about why I put it here. So yes, this was Naughty Dog's big thing. It was like the of all the games that came along at the end of this console generation, this PS3 exclusive post-apocalyptic game was the hot shit. Um, had been very hyped up by um, sort of story traders before this. Came along. I do like it. I replayed it last year. I don't think. It has particularly great stealth or survival mechanics in it. Mm. And I think that having played The Last of Us Part 2, I think that game does. I think that game is a much more complete mechanically sort of game. It's, it's a mm. lot brisker than, than I remembered this uh, The Last of Us. So it obviously takes place across these four seasons as uh, Joel and Ellie are traveling across um, America the whole thing being that Ellie has some immunity from this virus that's causing everyone to be these kind of fungus zombies, essentially. And so there's a possibility that if they get her to a certain place, there is a cure that can be um, synthesized that could save humanity and reverse the damage done. Now, what happens in that scenario, I think is very well done and is the best bit of the game, like what the outcome of that storyline is. Um, but I must admit, I found it slightly pompous at the time bit too in love with itself its seriousness um i kind of thought it was the road but was closer to like a sort of pg-13 action film or something maybe that's a little bit harsh but like i say i think there's i i I really love the second one and i thought it was a much better version of this more thematically deep more interesting like i say mechanically did loads more with its kind of combat sandboxes really really loved it this one i just thought there was a few too many instances where I would get grabbed by an insta-kill enemy and be like, oh yeah, fuck's sake. And, or like, rather than try to stealth my way through it, I'll just fire a gun, get four people to run at me and try and blow them up with an explosive rather than try and play it properly. I found myself doing that too often of getting myself getting too frustrated with it. Even though I kind of accepted it was beautifully, it looked amazing. Like it was a definitely one of the best looking PS3 games. Looked even nicer when they put it on PS4, of course. Somehow there is a third version of this game coming out in September now we redubbed part one um so yeah but just didn't quite capture my imagination the way it did for other people because i think a lot of people are a bit younger than me matthew to them this is like what uncharted 2 was to me um this was a game where they were like oh this is what you can do with like kind of blockbuster storytelling in games um and it really captured their imagination so it didn't do that for me thoughts 
I do love this game. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't not include it because I wanted to be contrarian and thing. I just, I just want. I'd rather celebrate some other uh, happier Nintendo things that probably better reflect like where I was sort of, you know, mentally <laughs> and in my life. You know, I was just enjoying these these fun things, and I was in a very Nintendo place. Um, that said, like I was absolutely like desperate to play this, and I you know, bought it on launch day and. Um, I remember for eight, they just kept talking about it on CVG because O and M sat next to CVG and they were they'd obviously all played it and they were just talking about it endlessly and it was one of those games which like uh, the last time this really happened was like with Bioshock where like everyone was talking about something and I was like I have to get on this because it sounds absolutely brilliant <laughs> I remember they kept saying that like I, I don't know which journalist it was but <laughs> apparently some famously stony hearted journalist had been brought to tears by the intro was of it was it Rich Stanton um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but it was just like oh so and so it's like i don't know the editor of mcv or something at the time had, had like wept over it it's like wow this must be so powerful if it made him cry um so you know maybe i went in with like slightly over the top expectations I'm, I'm completely with you on it like mechanically i think it's pretty soft um like uh yeah not particularly into it as as a like stealth game or an action game um i do really love it when they just take control and kind of shepherd you through something very choreographed but make you think you're in control like that is the that is the amazing naughty dog trick where they get you to be exactly where you need to be for this awesome thing to happen but it doesn't it still feels like you're playing it you know that is a there is an amazing technical art to that and as a technical thing, this game like was pretty astonishing at the end of the generation. Yeah, I just yeah, I, uh, I just didn't like uh, resonate with it emotionally like hugely. Like I remember thinking it was quite long and baggy in places. Um, I felt the same about the about the second one. Um, I don't know if if my slightly cooler reaction is in some way a reaction to the hype um around it or like counter to, a deliberate counter to that i did really like it it's probably like 11 on my list if that helps yeah but uh, but just below <laughs> attack of the friday monsters <laughs> <laughs> well like that's that i don't know that 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 game sort of speaks a little bit more to me in terms of what I, like i know that things are shitty and that people are shitty and that put in desperate situations life you know people do bad things and life's a struggle yeah. like i didn't necessarily need to spend like a grueling twenty hours being sort of reminded well, of that. Maybe that's a sim- maybe that's a simple. Well, take, this game but... definitely isn't that long for one. It's about ten hours long. It's is it? I remember it being much longer. No, than that. I don't think it's any longer than like twelve hours. It's like it's oh, significantly okay. shorter than the second one, which is monstrously long. Yeah, the second one definitely is. But I remember this also being quite long. I I do like the sections. I think maybe it's the autumn section. Where you kind of you're out in the countryside a bit, and there's the stuff with the farmhouses, and there's a good illusion that you are in a huge open world, but you're not really. I think stuff you ride a horse in this one. Maybe I'm conflating you with the second. Well, according, I'm I'm, sli- I'm slightly wrong here. The Last of Us, according to how long to beat, is fifteen and a half hours. Um, oh, the right. second one's twenty four hours. But, it definitely took me longer than twenty four hours to finish that second one. That's bullshit. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, you know, like the st- the stuff that everyone remembers and sticks with you. I you know. I, I like the you know the draft bit and the winter section you know the the winter hmm? section with the Nolan North character the winter section yeah like it you know it's it's got plenty of f- fun twists and turns I'm definitely not like I you know, I think it's a really really good game um, it just doesn't maybe like resonate with me as much as uh, Luigi's Mansion <laughs> <too. laughs> 
well, I think that's the other thing. <laughs> which has a lot, which has as much interesting stuff to say about death. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing. I don't want to sort of generalize here, but I think the fact that there was this young girl at the heart of the story maybe broadened its appeal past what some of these games had, past the audience that some of these games had previously been targeting, and that's why. I just, I've just, I just note that like a a lot of like women who are younger than me who write about games just really click with this. That's not like me saying everyone did, but certainly on Tech Radar, I noted that from a couple of colleagues, and I feel like it just that Ellie character just really spoke to people. So yeah, I totally get why it was their their game, but yeah, I just yeah just slightly pompous and not as mechanically refined as it would be. I really think I, I know you were a bit cool on that second game, Matthew. I thought our second game was like fantastic i know it's it gets super grueling but if we just take the story away and focus on the mechanics it's maybe the best mm, oh maybe, yeah maybe other than uncharted yeah. 4 it's like the best mechanically you know of all the naughty dog games but yeah yeah i i think i need to replay it. i i will definitely be playing this this part one remake for sure and maybe i'll reevaluate it it's been a long t- a long time i've, n- I've not re- i've not replayed it um since back then yeah. whenever i'm t- i was tempted to replay the remastered but there's a there's a stretch in this game i hate so much where you get stuck in like the basement of a hotel with like I think there's loads of those big exploding ones it's just it's a real like absolute motherfucker <laughs> of a difficulty spike and i had such a miserable time with it playing it originally that whenever i'm even toying with it i'm like oh no i that hotel bit i really hate that i wouldn't want to encounter that again and it puts me off that's so. fair maybe when the um tv show comes out next year we should do an episode on the series matthew and get a guest in or something that might be fun yeah yeah, yeah definitely i mean yeah i must admit i because i hadn't put it on my list i didn't really give it much thought you know yeah i didn't want to make a case for why it isn't on my no, list and <laughs> i would say like even though there are games on here that are definitely higher for me that i put it on my list because i still recognize it does so many things so well um and yeah there's still a lot i like about it it's um i like pretty much all of the guest characters who join you in the game i think are pretty memorable um it is you know well written and well acted like all of the um like all of the uncharted games were just um yeah maybe spoke to me slightly less because it's a little bit too self-serious i know it's it matches the subject matter but i just like i don't know maybe it slightly rubbed me up the the wrong way i don't really know but um yeah still still really liked it and enjoyed it on a a replay but um i think the second one's a legit masterpiece so uh what's your number six matthew number six is fire emblem awakening not on my list this was allegedly intelligent systems final shot at the series so they really go all in um i can't really remember the specifics of that anecdote it's it's pulled from the Iwata asks but you know this was a series which had been sort of dwindling a bit um and yeah i'm always slightly bemused by anecdotes where they're like we've got one last shot and we're going to throw loads of money at it and it feels like well that seems very risky for something you have so little faith in um but anyway by the book let's put that aside (laughs) um like really this is just everything that's good about fire emblem incredibly polished up it just really nails anything i don't think it like specifically alters the formula in any grand way but they definitely hone in on like what makes the individual characters tick and i think it's the attachment to those characters that makes everything in this sort of turn-based tactics game work you know it's famously got permadeath where if a character dies on the battlefield 
uh, they're removed from the story. As long as they're not one of the story critical people, that's game over. But so you can train these characters up over these battles, and in theory, you can lose them, and then it really hurts because they were more than just a generic, you know, command and conquer unit. They had a name, they had a backstory. You got to know them. This famously introduces loads of difficulty modes where you can remove the permadeath. I would recommend playing with it. It is the way a game's meant to be seen. Um, well, some people would say the way it's meant to be played is that you, re- you reset endlessly and keep everyone alive, <laughs> um, you know, no matter what. But I think kind of p- playing it and, and witnessing those deaths is, is part of what makes it work. Uh, but by having, but, but again, I think like with a strong cast of characters, the relationships between them are that much stronger. It has this big focus on like the strategic advantages of having sort of friends and lovers fight side by side. There's a big focus on marrying characters and them having children, which is sort of tied into the sort of scale of the story and the time it covers. Again, like a lot of these ideas have technically been seen before, but I think they were rarely done like so comprehensively or with such amazing production values. You know, when you look at this game, it's got this really gorgeous art. You know, it's got the 3D models that you see on the battlefield you know, in the cutscenes fighting. They're really cool, but it's also got this very just handsome art style. Uh, it's got a really top-notch localization um, of this one. And I think because of that, like, people just got wise to this. These characters being great, um, I feel like... This is the beginning of like ushering in some of that performative horniness that we talk <laughs> about, where which they definitely then lent into with like the social stuff in the Switch Fire Emblem, where you're in the school and it's all about like basically ogling all the teachers. Yeah, not to mention the character. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jesus. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that, but yeah, I mean, underneath it all, really not that different from. Like when this series was firing on all cylinders, probably on the GBA, the sort of sacred stones. Um, but yeah, just ev- everything sort of elevated. And yeah, with that central kind of twist of kind of strong character relationships translating to sort of bonuses on the battlefield is, I'd say, is really, you know, where this, where this sort of um, everything sort of comes into focus. Yeah, so oh, I've never really properly played this series. Do you think I would like it, Matthew? I think you would. They are fucking long. What? I mean, they're like, you know, 50 hours plus. How does the combat experience compare to something like XCOM? Is it like a similar sort of deal? So, not, not really. It's, it's, it's a bit more... Like, terrain is part of it. You know, like, if you fight in, like, woods or on certain surfaces, certain units are advantage or disadvantage. Mm. Um, really, at the heart of it is a rock-paper-scissors system ah. between between different unit types. And so it's a lot more about strategically getting, you know, your strong units where they're going to do more damage and your weaker units. Like, I'd say it's probably a more sort of higher, like higher-minded strategy game. It's, it's less about a sort of individual... Uh, combat scenario and more about the kind of the bigger battlefield picture. Yeah. So I'd like say. advanced wars, basically. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's like. But the reason I like this and I struggle with advanced wars is that you know you go in in this with the characters you have. You know they are individual named units. It's kind of like here are the pieces you have to play with. Here's the situation you have to deal with. What I don't have is the strategic mind to like build and prepare and plan in advance you know taking over buildings check tech trees anything like that 
is is where I come unstuck. So for me, this is sort of, you know, it has its own identity in that you don't have to kind of like build an army in the fight. You can just try and like make that army do the best it can. Mm. Okay, cool. So here's a question. If you're going to play one Fire, Fire Emblem game now, would it still be this one, do you think? I'd say probably in terms of like capturing like like the the broadest sort of strokes of the series in that it has that kind of really traditional core but it has the kind of the quality of the modern productions. Mm. I don't know I mean, this you know I I I must admit I've only played a bit of the Switch. Right. One. So you know like it's not one I can speak to hugely but there I would say like the kind of social sim side of it is definitely a lot more substantial yeah hard to say i think this one's got it all this is like a real like this is definitely a core fire emblem text yeah for sure this is like one of those games you'll see on every single best 3ds games list as well like um it's always on there um and it did did seem to like just ramp it up at least in the west kind of like capture the imaginations of people who had maybe missed it previously so yeah yeah i i think it yeah I think a lot of people were into the GBA ones. I just don't think the home console ones, maybe like the the Radiant games, made quite the same like impact. Yeah, of course. Um, like maybe it just suits handheld a little bit better. But then Switch, you can play handheld, so it's not it's not quite. Yeah, it's not uh, the most handsome the Switch game though, is it? It's like it's you know it feels maybe slightly you know it still it doesn't it doesn't look like the sort of mega tier of nintendo exclusive like a breath of the wild or something it's yeah, maybe like middle, maybe not middle. i don't know like the hand, like the character designs and the art style yeah like are they are very striking i can like it gets the important stuff right I'd yeah say. for sure it certainly yeah definitely seemed to struck a chord with all the horn dogs <laughs> that's what matters it's a war on <laughs> yeah but you know what, what you else know? are you doing it for other than the chance to have a shag afterwards do you know what i mean like that's <laughs> why else go to war what's the point hubba 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 <laughs> As your friend gets a fucking spear through their throat. Oh, there you go. That's what people really listen to this episode for. They're waiting for that. They don't want to hear the insight. They just, just want to hear the jokes about horniness. I don't know. I would imagine the real armies look down on, like, horniness. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I listened to an episode of This American Life, which was about everyone, the the people who lived on this giant US aircraft carrier, like, had, like, had like, hundreds of people on it. And, like, even though they were not supposed to, loads of people were just fucking on there. Like it was just, it was you know, like a frat house basically. What and like this reporter didn't have to dig hard to like find evidence of that. Um, yeah, just a lot of people, no. yeah, getting getting on with that. So uh, why wasn't there more of that in top? <laughs> the the sort of thing is though, like you probably feel more comfortable having a shag on an aircraft carrier because when is one of those an American one of those ever going to sink? Do you know what I mean? Okay, good. My number six, Matthew. It's Tomb Raider. It's weird because Tomb Raider Underworld, I know it's a big Matthew Castle favourite, but I feel like it got the reception of being a bit fuddy-duddy old school, um, which was perhaps unfair. Um, So, obviously, Lara Croft's lunch had been stolen a bit by Nathan Drake, and the Uncharted games were kind of like, sort of taking the sort of basic types of setting scenarios and such of um, uh, Tomb Raider, but making it much more sort of cinematic, and like um, with the with you know your motion captured cutscenes and stuff, this is almost like uh, Crystal Dynamics borrowing back from uh, Naughty Dog in order to make this Lara Croft reboot, where she washes up on this island 
um, uh, this kind of ship kind of washes up and uh, basically is forced to survive as she's fighting loads of vague mercenary men, um, and is 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 an interesting one in that it's a kind of mix of it, at its core it is basically like an uncharted style sort of cinematic shooter game a shooter shooter combat game, but um, also has a little bit of metroidvania structure to it where you can go back to different areas of different tools in order to like find new bits and pieces it's slightly zeldery world it's not quite open world but it's got open sections and it has got some stuff to find not loads of stuff to find um but there's just there's a few things i just really liked about this i thought the presentation was amazing for an end of the generation game it looked incredible Mm. i was really game for the premise of this the kind of washed up on an island idea and i think the story is particularly good but I think the scenario, the, the threat level felt high, partly because there are so many brutal death animations for Lara in this, quite famously. Yeah. Um, but also nailed the feeling of like a bow and arrow in a game in a way I hadn't experienced before. Like it made headshotting someone with that feel really good. Um, this quite mm-hmm. simple but nice kind of like um, pickaxe climbing system I thought was cool. I like that. Um, just the mix of stuff was fresh enough to kind of get me really excited about it with just a tiny bit of like survival elements thrown in as well a little bit hunting a little bit of like crafting nothing too in depth but just in Mm. general made for a really satisfying um sort of adventure and of course had like a few of the slightly puzzly um sort of like actual tombs to raid (laughs) as per the title um weird that they're kind of that side of it is optional in in this game but um thoughts matthew yeah like you know i still balk at the lack of tombs in a tomb raider game but you know this is a different thing really um yeah, I thought this was really super slick. Um, I love the kind of uh, the way she sort of automatically crouches. It doesn't. It has a sort of like organic cover system, I guess you'd describe it as, mm. where you don't sort of go into cover. She just kind of shifts, and um, definitely like outside of Nathan Drake, one of the more sort of like successfully sort of animated characters in in these kind of combat scenarios. It really sort of sells you on her and and her sort of physical presence in that world. Um, yeah, I really love this. I got a little bogged down in in the the, the weird optional challenges. It's got this really like <laughs> slight conflict at its heart. In that, on one hand, it's trying to be this very sort of psychologically real depiction of what it is to be a Tomb Raider, like yeah. is the is the big narrative thrust. But then it also has like layers and layers of really gamey bullshit, where it's kind <laughs> of shoot ten pots for this XP and find these things, and like every area has multiple of these these multiple of these challenges and i got really sort of stuck not like i don't think it's hooked on them i just the completionist in me like really went to town on them and it turns it into quite an abstract game where you're just hunting around these spaces you've emptied of all human life (laughs) to try and find like five flags (laughs) and then to try and like shoot like five burning pots and that's quite an odd choice um I think it puts you in conflict with what is otherwise like a really well-paced game. <laughs> yeah, it certainly doesn't outstay its welcome. I think that yeah, I didn't really do any of those to be honest. Like I was, I was really keen to do the tomb, the actual tomb raiding challenge bits. I was really keen to do those, but yeah, yeah, I just, I just couldn't like move on from an area until <laughs> I'd found like you know t- ten parrots or something. You know, like, <laughs> this is this is so dumb because the whole time she's like, oh, I've got, I've got to get to the village. I'm bleeding out as I'm looking for like twenty wicker men hidden in bushes <laughs> or something. <laughs> it just felt. Um lavish as all hell this game like you say the animation and like just the it felt like it took them 
over four years to make it you know it felt like that it was that level of operation um and to be honest like i only played a bit of the second one but it just it just didn't have the magic for me for some for whatever oh. reason um but maybe i should give it another try i don't know but um, yeah I, I, I like all three I, yeah. I actually think they're much of a muchness quality wise okay interesting i should yeah give that a proper try then i remember just being a bit eye rolling at the ending where she gets her pistols and you're like, yep, yeah, yeah. The ending sort of goes full supernatural with like a weather witch as well, right? Oh yeah, some dumb bullshit like that. Yeah, yeah and you're like, oh, you are stupid. You were pretending <laughs> that you weren't a stupid game, but you are stupid. <laughs> also, like this game has like, sh- like an Aldi Sean Bean character in it, like it, as her kind of mentor guy. That's like, you know, it's not afraid to go. It's it's very tropey in that way. Like, I don't think mm. the story was in my in my mind at all but i thought the kind of game feel of it was just fantastic and yeah definitely and like yeah like you like you said i just i like seeing people do the naughty dog thing in a slightly different way but almost mm. as good you know what i mean that's that really appealed or you know Quite. yeah a really great late game introduction of a silence pistol in this game. Like, it's like the last bit of equipment you get, and you are suddenly a really dangerous stealth presence because of it, because you can just stop popping everyone in the heads. Oh, it's got... A, yeah, that is good. Good power curve. Yeah. Good good final act because of it. Yeah. That is like a good power curve about this game, because you are meant yeah. to be vulnerable, but then you survive, and you th- you thrive, and then you win. And that's the the journey she goes on um mm. yeah i want to play these again now i did buy all three of them in a xbox pack on um for 18 quid a little while ago so um yeah i might give these a try matthew um mm. cool so what's your number five my number five is super mario 3d world higher on my list oh f- we finally got crossover <laughs> yeah i didn't think that would make thank your top god 10. says my sweaty back <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry matthew i feel so bad <laughs> making you do this podcast on this week we should have had a skip week shouldn't we um Okay, so my number five is DMC Devil May Cry. Not on my list. Okay, so this game is really cool. Um, They got so much shit at the time because it was essentially a reboot um, made by Ninja Theory, who had previously made Enslaved and Heavenly Sword, neither of which were amazing combat games. I think people were quite Mm. sceptical that um, Ninja Theory could make uh, something comparable to what Capcom in-house was capable of. Mm. Um, And also had the, the, the problem of basically saying that it's a different version of dante they redesigned the character so he had like black hair looked extremely different um there is nothing that distinctive about dante's personality he is more coat and haircut than character i would say but he is a very a great he's a on capcom's terms he's a great ps2 era creation like he has Mm. a certain attitude and vibe he is iconic for sure um so i think they were kind of courting trouble by giving him such a big redesign and that meant a lot of people didn't give this game a chance um would you say that's fair matthew bit mad because devil may cry 4 ain't like particularly great no that and that's the thing but this game is really fucking good and it was one i played again this week actually to prepare for this podcast so Hmm. um dates uh, dates better than devil may cry 4 does i would say like if you play it now it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like a 10 year old game it looks a little bit like one because of the textures Hmm. and stuff but um, boils down the, the kind of combat to sort of like you have these heaven and hell themed abilities. It kind of the whole story in it taps into the fact that your mother's an angel and your father's the devil um, aspect, and so you have like these blue and red color color coded weapons, and you you can access those at any time by pressing one of the shoulder buttons essentially. So you switch to you know the kind of like the devil weapon or the angel weapon, like a scythe or like um, a sort of like 
uh, not quite a whip thing, but something you can use to drag enemies towards you. And it gives mm. you this amazing range of like pull enemies around, chuck them in the air, like amazing range of movement to kind of bring the 3D combat to life. And I think it feels like a much more contemporary 3D combat experience than those earlier Devil May Cry games do, um, which are like quite convoluted in terms of like understanding how they work and how to like optimize them and then the kind of like the buttons you press. This is much easier to learn, but has the same skill ceiling for sure. Um, it's really, really good. But the thing that Ninja 3 also brings to this that arguably didn't exist in the same way in the Capcom ones is they're very, very set PC levels. So I think I think a lot of people remember the Fox News style uh, mm-hmm. Raptor News level in this, Matthew, where you're basically fighting the giant head of a Bill O'Reilly type in, yeah. in the game. Um, you're literally climbing inside the news program. It's really, really nicely done. Um, and it has a, there's like a nightclub level as well. There's a lot of shifting geometry around you in this. Like it's a visually spectacular game. And while there are memorable set pieces in Devil May Cry, I think the very specific Ninja Theory approach to this is actually extremely effective and makes this game quite distinctive. I must admit, I've, I've, you know, I've done a, a playthrough of this, but didn't get like massively, massively into the combat system. Like I, I you know, I don't really know. How, how it's sort of held you know with regards to the other games so to hear that it does have that you know high skill ceilings call because you know i remember playing you know normally with a devil may cry game i feel like the other you know the the the, the original ones and five i feel like oh there's shitloads of stuff which is clearly like beyond me or i'm missing here Mm. um like this is very deep and it's designed to be mined where devil may cry felt more like oh well i'm you know I, I didn't feel that for whatever reason. You know, I felt like I'm kind of doing just fine in this. It yeah. felt a bit easier, maybe, is probably, like, the shorter way of saying it. I think it, um, has, it has the same level of mastery, but it's just easier to play and get into. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, yeah, and in that sense, yeah, you can just enjoy the succession of, like, wild sights. Um, definitely, like, um, a more uh, appealing you know art through line in this game than the other ones you know the other ones are a little bit kind of like you know gothic castles and quite cliched versions of hell you know i wouldn't say do people love dev the, you know the, the capcom devil may cries for the setting i don't know i don't think they do i think they love them for the combat the attitude and the very very specifically capcom uh, you know that not the storytelling as such but just the sense of yeah the, the sensibilities that shape the game you know yeah absolutely yeah. like i i loved i loved five but definitely like the setting of it i was like ah, eh, this really could be anywhere like it's astonishing combat happening in quite generic sort of like oozing corridors yeah so here's the thing to throw in here right so um the definitive edition they released added something called hardcore mode which essentially completely remixes the enemies in the game so it's designed to be closer to the capcom style of like skill ceiling devil may cry kind of experience um so it was a deliberate change of one of many deliberate changes they made to that edition to like get a bit closer to that experience i actually did read um rich's review of this for eurogamer um last night and he 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 was kind of like of the mindset that when you do step up to the higher difficulties, it does definitely come to life. And because of the way you can pull enemies around, pull yourself towards enemies and things like that, you're given such choice as a player that the combat has kind of like real life to it. So I think it does get to those heights, but you have to like maybe wait a little. And it is designed to be replayed. So right. you only unlock the full, a bit like playing Bayonetta, you only unlock your full skill set once you kind of go through it. 
Um, yeah. But it's an interesting parallel to Bayonetta because I think both games try and progress what the original Devil May Cry's were doing um, with, through their own kind of like niceties to make them a bit more comfortable, whether that's easy automatic in Bayonetta's case or the um, slow-mo dodge, which makes it the combat a bit simpler to understand. Like here, mm. here Ninja Theory have their own take on how to bring that skill scene down a little bit. Well, at least initially, so you understand how to play it before you're mm. properly challenged, you know? So... A lot of waffle there, Matthew, but hopefully that's... No, that's uh, a good... I, I like that take a lot. I think that's that's very well put. Yeah, this holds up for sure. So, um, yeah, um, good stuff. So what's your number four, Matthew? My number four is Pikmin 3. Oh, awesome. I was going to say this is the Pikmin where they finally nailed the formula. It's definitely the Pikmin where they finally nailed the formula for me. Um, I never particularly got Pikmin 1 or 2. Um, one I found very stressful because it's famously a game where you are uh, controlling an army of little vegetable critters to do your bidding and you're basically using them to uh, harvest, save, save yourself from having crash landed on this planet, uh, but you have a 30-day time limit. And it is feasibly a game where you can play a whole campaign of it and not complete it and fuck yourself and then have to replay the whole thing. Too stressful, didn't enjoy it. The second one, they remove the time limit, and then it just becomes like a weirdly sort of hollow experience where you have all the time in the world and there's no pressure and you can just like nibble away at the world with these little critters and then all of a sudden it kind of guts the the purpose for being. So I I never really got them. Um, This one actually finds a really nice sweet spot between the two, um, a bit like Luigi's Mansion 2, in fact, where... It has like a pressure element in that you need to constantly harvest fruit on, on this alien world uh, in order to sustain your crew of pilots. But as long as you have juice, you can keep on going. So, you know, you have the basic goal of furthering your exploration, furthering your progress in this world of like getting whatever narrative doodad is you're currently working towards. But as a as a as long as besides that you are constantly harvesting fruit which is quite readily available you will always be well stocked and you know i comfortably like made made my way through this with loads and loads of fruit stored up but it still had that need of like well i have to be efficient um and that's really like what is at the heart of the pikmin games is it's like a big efficiency exercise like it may look like it's kind of cute and throwaway and that it has these silly little vegetable creatures um but what you're trying to do is make sure like you're sending the right Pikmin to do the right tasks. This really opens that up by having three pilots that you control in, in any given time. So you can sort of send them off to different parts of a level. So you can be literally like pushing out one frontier, pursuing a narrative goal with like another with another pilot and then use the third pilot to collect some of that fruit so when you really get into that side of the game it's it's very compelling they made a big song and dance about this being like on the first nintendo hd console as like a series that they didn't want to bring back until they had like the ability to to do that visual step up and i think it really pays off Mm. um has a really like beautiful sense of texture um you know from like sort of shiny kind of um shell of like a giant boss beetle or these little ceramic shards that you kind of pick up to build bridges over rivers these giant crystals that you can shatter with the rock pikmin you know just the water the sun dapple ponds it's a very satisfying game to look at like everything feels like it's very sort of tangible and sort of pleasant to interact with which i think the extra kind of graphical grunt really kind of like plays a big part in that also like i think the control wise you can play it with like 
traditional button controls, which is much like old Pikmin. Um, but the, the optimal way to play this is with like a nunchuck and Wii remote, where you can control like the movement of your astronaut on the analog stick, and then have the full pointer controls and really like surgically target every Pikmin where you want them to go. And that's really where this game came alive for me was was having the kind of gamepad map which you can kind of look at, kind of propped up, but playing on the TV with those controls. Mm. Yeah, finally, this series made sense for me. Yeah, and like what was always very stressful and scary and like probably too much strategy, you know, even in this for my personal liking, um, I felt like I finally had the kind of tools to kind of get on top of the situation in this one. And it just completely sold me on the concept. Um, Yeah, I think it's like just a, a really like... I get it. I get Pikmin, and I hope they make more because this game was so good. Oh, that's awesome! See, I I I had a similar experience to you where I kind of liked the sort of basic format of controlling, ordering the Pikmin around, and controlling your little dude, and like um, how the game loop actually worked. But yeah, like maybe didn't quite click with the shell of it, and I've never played this one. Do you know if um, the Switch version has the pointer controls on the Joy Cons, Matthew? I I actually haven't played the Switch one, mm. um, and I should have looked that up. You'd think they would. It'd be madness if they didn't, because yeah. like it's just a, it's a huge part of what makes this game work. I mean, the button controls work far. You know, you can do it, but it's it's a, a little less elegant. Um, and so much of this game, like it's got really good mission mode actually once you've done the campaign it's got these like self-contained levels and i think where this game really comes alive is where you've got a very fixed space that you can quickly like master like where everything is and then it becomes about really digging into that kind of efficiency of like i'm gonna try and do this time challenge mode as fast as possible and collect the most fruit i know where everything is you know what is the most optimal way of like dividing my pitman between my three pilots you know using my remote to just like i'm cane you know you're running you know really fast but at the same time you're just chucking these these pitmen exactly where they need to be it's uh, a really like a really really deep game and i, I almost wonder if like this is always what Miyamoto kind of imagined for it, being about like this sort of, like I say, efficiency kind of task, um, but only on this format with that control scheme can it like properly be recognised. Mm. Okay, interesting. I feel like Pikmin's in a constant state of, I am making another one. Miyamoto says that, and then like six years later, it kind of emerges. That's sort of like yeah, yeah, <laughs> sort of its status these days, isn't it? Because it is, it's like the whole thing that like his sort of passion project, like love of gardening something like that matthew yeah i mean it, for a long time it's it's i think it's still like the last gamey game that is very you know specifically from him right right you know like at the time when it came out it was like this is miyamoto's new game you know the brain that brought you all these other games you know he's obviously had a huge hand in like you know we fit and we sports and all these things but in terms of like a game aimed at the core I'd say this. This I think this is still like the last real like Miyamoto baby. I'm now he's just too busy like designing fucking theme parks and whatever. <laughs> so and signing off on like Chris Chris Pratt's re- line readings in the Mario movie. <laughs> I mean, he's he's an older guy now. I can imagine that's you know if like your job was to, like, shall I go into the office and reinvent the game design wheel? Or shall I just make someone build, like, a fucking rad Donkey Kong log float? <laughs> uh, like, yeah. I would probably take the log flume. Like, you know, it's just a diagonal line with some water, isn't it? 
<laughs> oh, that's really funny. I mean, that must be a dream come true for him, like designing theme parks and shit. That's uh, yeah, yeah. That's got to be exciting. But yeah, that's got to be easier, surely. You would think so, yeah. And it's definitely like a young man's game trying to like reinvent the wheel. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good stuff. Uh, my number four, Matthew, is XCOM Enemy Within. So not on my list. So this is like, not even played. I don't think I even played. Which one is this? The this the original XCOM reboot. Um, no, this is the expansion to the reboot. Um, I haven't played the expansion. I have played the original, not this. Yeah, so obviously, like, XCOM comes back in 2012 with Enemy Unknown. This console pad-friendly reformatting of the old XCOM uh, formula where it's turn-based. Um, you basically, on a global scale, you combat this um, alien invasion and then you go to these different places and in, in the kind of, like, a, a sort of macro scale, you do these turn-based missions to try and kill the aliens and then progress your campaign. So this is two two layers, strategy layer and a tactical layer um, that kind of work in sync um, to create this repeatable, uh, sort of like enjoyable campaign that you can theoretically lose. So XCOM always always has um, the old uh, permadeath as well, much like Fire Emblem, where you get attached to your soldiers and then when they die, uh, you feel like shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you know the goal is to try and keep them alive if you can whether you're sort of save, save scumming or you accept the consequences of your actions it kind of makes things feel incredibly tense um, so Enemy Unknown was a really good refresh a really good like reformatting of, of it for a modern age, really successful I think this makes it a borderline 10 out of 10 game because what it threw in was tons more stuff, loads more maps new enemy types the big one was that it let you build mechs essentially it let you harvest alien technology to pursue these paths where you had like cybernetic implants for your your characters so they had more kind of like psychic style abilities or they had mechs and they could basically go in like and um, like dominate the battlefield sort of in that physical sense um and so by adding that it, it just it added so much more in the way of strategic potential in these games that are kind of like about basically like repeating the sort of same beats over and over again for a slightly different campaign the idea there are even more things that could diverge you could completely change the way that you're approaching the game on a combat level was really exciting meanwhile there's just a, a, a like a massive list of things they added to this these new kind of narrative style missions where the world council in the game on the sort of on the sly would ask you to um go and escort an npc in a certain place they'd have these little stories that play out it'd be like um a guy who's turning his back on the triad yeah it's 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 those sorts of like mini stories that have been added to the game a massive increase in variety just really completed what they laid out in 2012 mm. and made it so much more repeatable so much more fun mechs were fantastic just having that extra layer of like you can do all kinds of fun shit with your troops different ways to customize them really really worked just so much so much more sort of scope to enjoy it i've been playing again this week on the uh, steam deck actually and it is just fantastic it just i think the xcom enemy unknown did get slightly stale by itself when you did like a third run through um you kind of saw the same maps over and over again you're done with it this just meant you could kind of keep playing it over and over again so mm. really fucking good matthew i know it's not your sort of thing but um that's what's oh, on no, my list. I, lo- I love xcom i just i just haven't haven't played this yeah um, that's fine that's how much i love xcom <laughs> <laughs> no completely fair so no but just really like one of the best expansions ever made and obviously Firaxis were they're super good at making expansions for their games as um, XCOM um, 2's War of the Chosen expansion would show they're good at finding ways to 
put out a nine out of ten game, but then put out an expansion that takes it to the next level. You know, so um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's um your number three, Matthew? My number three is Rayman Legends. Oh, nice! Not on my list. Yeah, I mean. I think I've talked a bit before about maybe I can't remember if Rayman Origins appeared on one of these lists, but uh, I really like the the new two D uh, Rayman duo. Um, I think the platforming is like very very maneuverable, um, very sort of flexible, and because of that, they can really throw him through some like mad gauntlets. He's got this kind of elastic manic energy to it, which I really really dig. Um, this was noticeable for a couple of reasons. One, it had these awesome music levels where you were kind of almost like an auto runner making your way through a level set to a piece of uh, cover of a pop song like uh, Eye of the Tiger played by a mariachi band is one of the good ones. Um, and, you know, every jump that you're making the level is so choreographed to the music that, you know, it's happening on the beat or you're punching through um barriers when certain things happen in the music and it's just a a really like brilliant interplay between the soundtrack and and what you're doing in the level um all beautifully animated but um the reason i really love this is uh this was a really great wii u game it's on just about everything but i'd say on just about every other platform it's compromised in some way because it was built with the wii u gamepad to be like a key feature of it um specifically on the gamepad you control this little kind of sort of frog fairy thing i think it's called murph and this sort of so with the touch screen on the gamepad a player can interact with the levels while the other person's platforming through it as rayman they can like move platforms about or kind of uh, swivel things or shift bits of level furniture about basically um up to slightly more conceptual things there's a level made of cake where you literally kind of drill paths through the cake with murph for, for people so um in terms of like giving the gamepads player something very specific to do not many games did and i would argue like they probably did more here than like any any other game any other first party game maybe that's unfair and there's something that's slipped from my mind but um at the time we were really like dazzled with how good the cart was on this on other platforms that murph stuff becomes slightly unsatisfying in that it, it basically i think they add like a murph button and you press that you have to press a button on the on the controller and then the, an ai murph will go and do it so um definitely belonged on wii u i mean that stuff aside just gloriously animated the 2d art engine i think it's the, is it the ubi art engine i think it's called that ubisoft made absolutely sings in this every level has got like a mad visual concept to it um i think rayman origins was a bit more of a plodding platformer compared to this this one is just like an explosion of ideas from start to finish like real momentum kind of pulls you through um yeah so exciting i I absolutely loved this at the time um actually haven't gone back to it haven't gone back to it because of the um you know it being so good on wii u maybe i need to dust off the wii u and plug in the thousand cables um (laughs) to try that yeah so i did play this at the time so i think there was like a quite an early on demo they released for this on wii u um yeah, that's, that sounds about right. And I noodled around with that for a lot um, because I thought it was so, so fantastic. And then the only full version of the game I ever played was on PS3. And it was really obvious that it was made for the gamepad when you played it on PS3. Right. And I think you're right. Like it, It's almost not worth it by itself because it's just, it's just too diminished. Like it, it's, I feel like so many of these games didn't commit to using the gamepad because either they knew the Wii U was a, like a niche kind of concern or... 
you know, they just didn't have a kind of inventive way to use it. And yeah, it's weird that this game pays the price in the modern age for for using it in the way it was intended to be used. Um, but yeah, yeah, like um, it still looks fantastic if you play it by itself. But I don't know, it's just so obvious in the interface of like how you how you play it that it's meant for the Wii U. So um, mm. yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, very yeah. Ubisoft were sort of all in on on the Wii U at the time, weren't they? So um, mm. yeah. Um, okay, good good pick, Matthew. Okay, how many how many Switch? Uh, sorry, how many Wii U games or 3DS games is that for you now? It's mostly Nintendo your list, isn't it? It's all of them, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. Well, I suppose like you... I say, it just reflects what I was into at the time. Yeah, that is what these. Uh, <laughs> I these was are playing for. loads of other stuff too. Yeah. No, it kind of makes sense. Um, so we come to my number three, Matthew, a game you already mentioned, Super Mario 3D World. Um, we've definitely talked about this a whole bunch of the podcast before. I love this because it's sort of boiled down. So it wasn't the kind of like Super Mario Galaxy style Mario 3D game. It was almost like the 2D Mario games translated back into 3D um, mm. in terms of like the ge- the level geometry, the style of game, stuff like that. Could be interpreted as conservative. Um, wouldn't necessarily kind of fight that description, but I think very like wonderfully done extremely playable this game added the ability to play the levels with um four people i think it's slightly strange to play by itself i've mentioned this before but the levels are in size wise are clearly built to accommodate four people so it's a bit strange running through it by yourself but really comes alive when you have two people running through just such a hilarious game to share with a person um trying to complete the mini games together um picking another player up and throwing them off the edge by accident um one person like very nervous to get into the end on the last life um while the other player is dead racing to get up the flagpole built for co-op in a way that i thought was just phenomenal really pleased it's been salvaged onto wii u what Mm. for your thoughts matthew yeah i've warmed to it replaying on switch i did love this at the time like i played it you know loads and loads i absolutely rinsed it on wii u but yeah i played a bit more with co-op with Catherine. and you're right like the battle for the crown adds all this like mad petty comedy to it (laughs) um I still think it's mad going from like the full analog movement of Galaxy to the kind of eight directions here. That that feels like a big backward step that I find quite hard to get over. Um, but like the levels that are happening around that movement are just too like wildly inventive, and there's just a, like an endless parade of weirdness. You know, it's just like a Mario Kart level, a load of clones slipping down blocks that are shifting on the beat. Now you're a Goomba. Oh, you're climbing a Japanese castle. You're Captain Toad. There's loads of fucking bullet bills shooting at you as you climb up a wall. Like, it's just crazy, the amount of stuff in this game. And, yeah, you just can't really deny it. Um, Champions Road, the very last level. That's an absolute motherfucker. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I ever finished it, actually. That that one, that last level, so brutal. Is that the, like, um, optional... Uh, that's like the, uh, that's the the absolute like last level of the game all because there's so much like secret unlockable content in this game it's like a, almost another campaign even you must have enjoyed the mario galaxy levels that you added to this so oh yeah yeah uh, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely like that that that's that stuff's wild if it didn't have that extra like half to it i think it would be you know a lot weaker but it's kind of like the foot like the campaign proper is almost like a tutorial for like 
and here are the real levels. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. Like, there's not too much of that stuff, but there's definitely enough of it to kind of keep you playing. Um, mm. And then, yeah, you can obviously go through and get the whatever the fucking currency is to unlock the different. Um, I think green stars. That's isn't it? it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely kind of gives you replay value. Just a, yeah, just an endless sort of pot of joy as a co-op experience goes. I'm very very fond of it. Um, and yeah, it did take me years to get to it, but um, loved it enough to plug in the Wii U in like 2016. Whoa. I mean, is there any you know, any bigger sort of like endorsement for a game than that, Matthew? Um, but yeah, okay, great stuff. So we come to your number two. My number two is the wonderful 101. Oh wow! A platinum game, specifically a Kamiya uh, action game about binding together an army of superheroes into giant fists, guns, whips, and hammers to pull off the insane combos you would expect from a cameo game. Of course, he's Mr. Bayonetta, Devil May Cry, etc., etc. Um, something we actually mentioned in the Nintendo Hall of Fame was this sort of, like, idea of Platinum's ongoing experiments with, like, a weaker hero who becomes like powerful at some kind of scale. This is definitely another really good example of that. Can be a tough nut to crack. I think it's probably the strangest and like mechanically perplexing of all Kamiya's games. Like there's a very light Pikmin element where you're throwing lots of tiny people to clamber on enemies to sort of stun them and open up for combos. There's this strange weapon selection system where you kind of draw shapes onto the world to to form those people into these giant weapons, which as part of a smooth combo system definitely takes a bit of time to kind of click with. Um, the, the fact that different weapons play very specific roles when you're fighting specific enemies, and it doesn't tutorialize it brilliantly. Like, I think a lot of people play this game and are just completely thrown by it and sort of fuck it off. I would actually really recommend watching... There's a couple of very good tutorial videos made by, like, super fans of this, um, which, you you know, if you just search for, like, Wonderful 101 tutorials, they'll pop up first, and they probably do a... Well, no, they don't probably. They definitely do a better job of explaining it than the game itself. So, as a result, you kind of almost have to play through it once, kind of not fully understanding it and maybe butting heads with it occasionally to kind of unlock everything and then go back through it and, and really kind of get to grips with it. So, definitely a demanding game. Um, but it is really worth like muddling through, I'd say, because there's so much to love here. I mean, just the bright colourfulness of it. It's like this sort of superhero comic booky, very colourful world, very appealing visually. Um, it's got these absurd quick time events and giant boss fights, everything you want from Platinum. Um, and Kamiet, like is the king of this stuff. You know, he is, you know, when he is on top of his game, there is no one better at this stuff than him. Like when those bosses go down, they go down in such spectacular fashion that you really end every level on an air punch which i love um it's also got some like really high concept bosses um i I can't remember if this was mentioned in our boss episode but um there's one which famously plays like a big sort of parody of punch out where you're inside this mech and you're trying to watch for you know duck and dive around uh guys incoming fists and you're trying to like knock him out very specific moments lifts loads of mechanics directly from punch out famously ends with your fist connecting with his jaw you then run all your heroes along his fist into his mouth and fight another boss inside his head um (laughs) which is just pure platinum that is just so good um it makes me very sad that Kamiya hasn't made, you know, 
quote unquote a proper big cameo game um, since this, uh, which is wild because he's just unrivaled at this stuff. I think um, again one which something is lost when you don't play it on Wii U. It does some dual screen stuff which they kind of replicate with picture in picture on the ports. Um, but like going inside buildings and seeing inside the building on the gamepad or uh, there's a, a, a ship that you see the ship on the TV screen, but you control the ship by like running around its interior on the gamepad. Stuff like that, I think, is, is what still elevates the Wii U version. But the chances of you buying a pre-owned Wii U and a pre-owned copy of Wonderful 101 is mad. So, you know, just 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 play a version of this. It's still good. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I sort of like, at the time, the visual style of it was what I loved the most. The kind of like tiny superheroes and these kind of like micro-machines-y settings it would take you to. It's like a, yeah, it's like a water it, yeah. park setting in this, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, that you go around, yeah, the city's very kind of sort of day-glow, plasticky, kind of wonderland sort of theme park vibe. So it's, yeah, there's... Yeah, that 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 definitely rings a bell. Definitely felt like it was yeah a great fit for the gamepad. Found it very frantic. Um, didn't quite click with it on that kind of action game level like I did with you know some of um, Platinum's other games. But very singular. Um, I don't think it sold well at all. This game. Please, they were able to salvage it and put it on other formats. That's nice. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it just yeah really sh- a real shame that it was ignored because you know this is the kind of game that hardcore people who are dissing the wii u would have enjoyed but they just weren't paying attention to it they just didn't care yeah. so and that was I f- unfair i feel like nin- i feel like nintendo didn't have like like any idea what to do with it right 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 because like we wanted to put it on covers and stuff and they were like uh you know it, i think it was sitting around for a while you know it was kind of like anything on this you know i think we were expecting to do like a review of it like much earlier than we did in the end and things like that it was definitely a you could tell it was a puzzle to them. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, cool. Well, no, it's a, a great pick here, though. I should have um, expected it to be high up. Looking forward to doing that. Did we say we'd do a Platinum Hall of Fame episode later this I year? I think we should for, like, Bayonetta 3. Yeah, yeah. So just to explain how this <laughs> that's different to other Hall of Fame episodes, what we'll do is we'll try and pick five games that represent the best of what of their like history, essentially. Um, so that'll be fun. Do you see that interview in the rounds today, Matthew? They're trying to hire like up to a thousand people, and they've got this Nintendo guy um, running them now. Do you see that? Yeah, they must have some like mega bucks, big projects like locked in for other people. Yeah, yeah, because I think they talked about. I think there's like one in-house published game that that is what Kamir is making next. I think, yeah. and then like yeah, That's... there's other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Astral Chain Two oh. or, or Near Automata Two. Oh yeah, you know one of those. Either of those would be good. Good by us. Okay, we come to my number two, Matthew. Uh, I don't think this is on your list. <laughs> Bioshock Infinite. It isn't on my list, but again, I really liked it. Yeah. So I put this very contentious game quite high. I think this is like not entirely beloved these days for a variety of reasons, which I'll, I'll come to. Um, so obviously this is the sequel to Bioshock in development for more than five years at Irrational Games once again directed by Ken Levine a Bioshock a game set in a city underwater this uh, set in a city in the skies Columbia what is the uh, what is the aesthetic what, what's the description description here Matthew because oh. like Art Deco is how you describe Bioshock but it's kind of got this like world's fairy quality to it right yeah yeah, yeah that is, yeah 
Yeah. Whatever that is, yeah. that, that makes sense to me. Whatever <laughs> um, Captain America the First Avenger is going for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of like, um, yeah, I suppose like steampunky in some ways for sure. Um, setting. So yeah, you um, you play this character Booker DeWitt. Um, you are essentially tasked with uh, finding this girl, Elizabeth, retrieving her from this city and going back again. The city is full of hostile people. It's a very kind of racist, pro-American uh, sort of like splinter state it's like overwhelming to experience in first person this game i think like the real magic <laughs> of it and what i love about it is the the moments in which you kind of shoot up from the lighthouse into the clouds and you see this city for the first time is one of the best the best things that i've ever experienced in a game i think most many people would feel that way mm. even like though there are some big problems with this game in terms of the combat is not doesn't quite hold hang together as well as it could in terms of the combination of your sort of powers and guns um it's still very entertaining um it's like as a world to experience it is phenomenal does these kind of like neat little alternate universe sort of like elements where you'll hear uh, sort of like modern pieces of music but played in the past and you kind of question what that is and little sort of like elizabeth your character has the ability to kind of tear open reality and you'll see um sort of like uh, snapshots of other times and places which ask lots of different questions um really mm. complicated story um ultimately but uh really i just really have a fundamental love for this game even though i think it ends in quite it, it feels very incomplete by its ending you kind of fight a ghost and then the game sort of ends and the ghost fight is terrible um but <laughs> As a yeah, as a, overall as a kind of like a sort of depiction of a world using the different sort of like um, skyhook things to kind of get around, felt kind of acrobatic and sort of fun. Yeah, just and I kind of really like the sort of sci-fi weirdness of it. The, the questions it asked about the ways in which you can manipulate re- reality hmm. really thought that that really worked for me. And so yeah, I didn't really have any problems with it at the time, to be honest. I got tired of the sort of sniffiness around this one. You know, everyone always complains that AAA games kind of don't engage the mind and don't try to be ambitious, and then when one does. People are super, super quick to shoot it down and say how much cleverer they are than it and like laugh in its face. And you're like, okay, you can't hold those two stances. Mm. You know, you either engage and appreciate when it happens or you just sort of deny it completely. Like, that really bugged me about it. Like, when this game absolutely sings, are in its like set pieces where it really puts you in the heart of that world, I think the opening stretch of this is absolutely incredible. From that lighthouse, you know, up to the arrival, you know, it's basically just a walking sim as you as you move through this world, but with like production values out the wazoo and like a, a vision that's so exciting to step into, and just the tension of, of like when it goes wrong mm. and the idea of being caught where you're not meant to be it's like it's so brilliantly done i love that scene where he kind of gets caught out you know with where it, where it sort of finally comes to the you know th- is it throwing the rock at the person on stage and you don't and then the crowd turns on you and you're like oh shit i'm right in the heart of like a really bad place like it, it really captures that which is like you know you've seen it in in loads of films but to kind of experience that kind of that that tension i thought was brilliantly done i actually don't mind the ending you know i i certainly not the bigger like bioshockiness of it with all the kind of infinite lighthouses and all that um oh, I love you know, that, yeah. as a big as a big grand sci-fi swing um you know i heard some people sniffy sort of say oh, it's like a bad doctor who episode <sighs> whatever it's 
I, I think it sort of sees it through to the end. I just wish it was like, I think there is like a, maybe like the central third of this is like a bit of a slog where you've got the most combat and the combat doesn't, you know, doesn't work brilliantly for me. I've only played it the one time, but it's it's locked in my head as unmatched moments. Yeah. Um, you know, when it's when it's at its best, it's as good as Bioshock. So the cultural backlash this, I think, is comes from a fair place, which is that it kind of suggests a sort of both sides are bad narrative um, when it's got, like, race at its heart as a, as a theme and, like, one what one particular character threatens to do to Elizabeth is the line it crosses for people. What I will right. say is I think that is fair criticism, but it's not the only thing people should talk about when they talk about this game. Like, that's kind of how I feel about it. Now, people may disagree with that, and that's completely fair, but this game does too much other amazing stuff for that to be the only thing you take away from this game, I think. I think it's fair to say that the execution on that is flawed. I don't disagree with that. But I think this whole game is about how lofty can we go, and we won't quite get there, but goddammit, it'll be entertaining to watch us try. Um, And I think that's the feeling I'd take away from Bioshock Infinite, is that yes when it takes you to all these locations it is amazing when you go to the the sort of like the museum the kind of history of um of columbia and uh and father comstock and the kind of fake narrative he's built for himself and um when you go to the when you're fl- flung onto the beach for example and you're surrounded by npcs and these places feel like real place like a real it feels like so vividly like a real place it's just unbelievable though like you say the level of vision behind it is extraordinary it does feel like a game that had like a bumpy ride to get to where it was um and I think that to just to also clarify, I do like the ending on a storytelling level. I just mean the ending on a gameplay level. It does sort of oh, peter yeah. out, you know what I mean? Um the the ghost yeah. fight. Yeah. yeah. Um All I remember from the time was just being so smashed over the head with the discourse about this game that yes, I imagine within that discourse there is plenty of valid points to be made i just feel like people got really hung up on like ken levine as a figure yeah and it was more about like no not him you know like we don't want this to happen and you're like well this is the person who made it happen so yeah it does i I would rather this existed but that that is true like it exists because the creative director wanted to make this essentially and then had yeah. hundreds of talented people who helped bring that vision to life i maintain the point i said before which is i think that you to most people you should see barely let's see part one and two as the way this story concludes i don't think bioshock infinite by itself is the way to view the game because the whole point of the barely let's see is it's about the very last booker and elizabeth who exist across all realities and closing the loop on that. So there is the true conclusion to the game. It's not just a kind of novelty uh, sort of Ooh. Bioshock um, DLC. It, though, yeah. Though even that, remember recently it brought out the old fucking Dunk Brigade because <laughs> of that girl dancing with the baguette. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you had the designer of it explain very specifically why it ended up being this this thing and how this sort of came to be, and not in a defense of it, but 
I just the second you can the second you can dunk, people will always dunk on this game. Yeah, and it's really tiresome. Also, um, that- and unfortunately, like the valid criticisms get lost in the sheer tidal wave of fucking bores. Yeah, talking about this game. Also, that was shitty on another level. In that I think people are like, oh, how insightful! It's the French setting, but the, there's a guy, you know, there's a kid dancing with a baguette. But guess what? That entire section is designed to be stereotypically French. It's right. Elizabeth's idea of what France, the Paris is, not what Paris is actually like. The entire thing is heightened and a dream sequence. Stupid point on Twitter to get a few fabs. Absolutely worthless criticism. I'm not. I'm not saying that like a AAA game is like the underdog here, but like you, I just got tired of the. What is it? What is it that people actually want if it's not this? What do you want? You know, do you want Doom Eternal? I love Doom Eternal too, but there should be a place for like a blockbuster shooter game that wants to try and be a little bit intellectual as well. That there should be a place for both. So yeah, yeah that's me stamping my feet like a small child. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and um, with your sweaty back in mind, Matthew, let's move on to your number one. My number one is the Nintendo Classic. GTA 5. Oh, it's my number one as well. Perfect. Hooray. Oh, I, I thought you weren't going to have this on your list. And I was like, what the fuck is he playing at? Just like not putting any... Oh, no. This, like, <laughs> there, are, there are lots of... <laughs> Listen, Last of Us, Bioshock Infinite, maybe they should have been on the list, you know. I'm willing to put my Tomb Raider. I'm willing to put my hand up there. But, you know, if, I don't think people listen to this podcast just to hear two people go, The Last of Us is good. No, you know, I, I think you also want to hear about... Uh, Lego City Undercover. No, no, I, I will say I loved your list. I thought your list was so you and exactly <laughs> what I wanted to hear from you. It would have been completely boring if we had the same list because I have yeah. all the obvious stuff. Good, good. Yeah. But um, GTA 5 is like undeniable. Uh, I absolutely adored this game. Um, it's my favourite uh, Rockstar game by a long way. I just don't think I've got many happy gaming memories or many gaming memories as happy as just like bombing down the coastal highway in this game listening to baker street it's just it's just fucking so so rad (laughs) yeah i think it's really easy to forget what this was like now because we've had gta 5 has not gone away at all of course rockstars keep kept releasing it across three different generations and it is the setting of gta online a setting that has not changed in the nine years this game has existed they've bolted lots of other stuff on top of it uh to make it interesting keep people playing but you i have seen that city for hundreds of hours now and it's true that when you look at the same place that long the specialness of it does rub off but in 2013 like finally seeing rockstar deliver that san andreas scale experience in hd with those kind of gt4 level visuals was pure magic and bringing back all the stuff you missed like the flying and the kind of the mission design that was a lot more set pc and the kind of like the more sort of like comical tone gt4 was quite self-serious in some ways mm. um that mix was just absolutely electric um and then did this quite novel um i thought very successful character swapping mechanic as well um, mm. which allowed, gave you different perspectives on the story but also the characters controlled differently uh, yeah, just just fantastic um, yeah, one I reviewed I remember just seeing this it, it kind of like Rockstar's officers before it came out and them um, sort of seeing like, you know them kind of doing a mission while Glamorous by Fergie was playing and driving through like the Beverly Hills equivalent just thinking this looks fucking unbelievable um, it had been such a long wait for this as well I think that 
why did I move here? I guess it was the weather trailer, which I think was 2011 that came out. So <laughs> it was a fucking long wait, but so, so worth it. Like a, a proper 10 out of 10 game, this, Matthew. Mm. I, I, I think of all the GTAs, I think the reason it resonates more, I think it has like the best through line of any of their games. You know, the idea of like the debt that you're trying to pay off. And then you have those signature heists mm. sort of punctuating the game as the as the big set pieces, and it kind of captures a like I don't know a sense of being like a career criminal, which all the games have been about playing various criminals. But here, the kind of the anticipation of the big job and the build up to it, you know, regardless of how what you actually think about those heists individually, like it, it just gives it this really nice rhythm, which carries it all the way to the end. It's the only one which I played through like you know at launch start to finish you know the other ones i have finished but i gave up on like gta 4 about two thirds in came back to it years later this one i was just like i just couldn't i couldn't put it down yeah the heist i really love the idea that they were like okay three leaf clover is the best level of gta 4 so let's construct our game around a type of mission i really love that as a conceit and mm. then let's have the character swapping allow you to move to different bits of the heist to see those bits play out yeah like which is your favorite heist um it's the it's like the the the, i can't remember the name of it but like the the big bank job one where you kind of go underground in the vault in like one bit and then you fly off in the helicopter at the end and there's a bit that goes full heat where michael's like out on the city fighting cops in like downtown la basically um i think that's all one heist (laughs) do you remember the names of them no i don't remember the names of them yeah but Um, i think that is like the last heist i think it's like the main one but yeah, that's uh, certainly like that's probably the moment I I recall with the most fondness. Um, how about you? Mm. Uh, I actually really like the first diamond store heist. Just the escaping on the bikes through the storm drains, I think, is like properly iconic. Though I do also like the kind of small town one that just escalates horrendously, where you're in that like big bulletproof suit and minigunning it. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like Trevor wearing mech armor, isn't it? That's kind of like yeah, yeah it's really good. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's weird because in my head it's almost like the single player heists are kind of overridden by the on, the online heists I've played many times over. So I don't, right. I'm afraid I don't remember them as well. But yeah, it's whichever one like has you leaving the bank and then Michael's fighting cops in the street. I just remember that the stakes on that being super, super high. Um, mm. It was the fact that you I, had. I the... just think in the other GTAs, they're like it's very hard at any given moment to say like, what am I actually doing in this game? Like I'm, t- I'm technically working for all these people, but like, why am I? How did I fundamentally get here? Like they're just they're just games about doing like favors for ten horrible bastards, yeah. And then one of the bastards wins at the end. I, I liked that in this one. I was always like, you know, we fucked up at the start. We've got to get the money. We've got to do the heists. It's it's just really really clean. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I think like the fact that there was this level of build up as well met, turned them into kind of real events. Um, mm. do you, how do you feel about the the fact that the in the ending you can like have the characters like kill each other and you know there's different ways it can play out so you can keep all of them alive or do you have any kind of thoughts on that? I only ever played it so that they are alive, all alive. Yes. Um, in my happy version, I didn't actually know that they could kill each other. Yeah, like um, I think that like I think you can basically have it so at least two characters are still alive. Right. Yeah. I, I know some. The big criticism of this game is that. Some of them, particularly Trevor, are quite hard to sort of spend time with. But I felt like the, the ability to kind of, you know, you didn't have to spend more time with him than you needed to, really, you know, because of the way the game sort of structured. So it, it didn't really bother me. 
Oh, it's just so fucking good. The map in this, like, because the city in itself is fine, but, like, I think it's when you get out into the countryside and, like, the small towns and the kind of north of the map, it's just unbelievable like, how much cool stuff's in this game. Yeah, at one point it, sw- it switches to introduce Trevor, doesn't it? Where you're in the plane and mm. you're flying on the other side of the map and it's, like, a proper, wow, this is the other part of the game you've not seen yet moment. Um, and, then yeah. you, and then you have the whole drive up to the city as well where, like... I think one radio station fades out and another one comes in as you get closer to the city. And yeah, yeah. just amazing, amazing set of scale. There will always be a part of my brain, I think just because when I was growing up and the games which were big when I was a kid, which is like, you know, GTA is just like an indicator of where like where we were at. And also like GTA is like what I wanted like games to be in kind of, you know, here's the world. And here's in the world as you know it, and you get to be in it, and you get to do anything and live that fantasy, and just the variety of stuff you could do in this game, and just how you know crazy open it was. It's kind of the excitement around this is is kind of you know sort of an excitement you only really feel around GTA. I feel yeah, for sure. Yeah, just an amazing kind of capper to that sort of generation. I do wish there'd been another GTA by now, honestly, and I probably would have. I probably would trade nine years of gta on nine for another gta um just because i oh, for sure i still i still very much prefer the single player experience even though i <laughs> yeah like 100 yeah um even though gta online is very impressive but yeah yeah it's um it was just a, it was just the real deal it was the most complete feeling 3d gta it did everything you want to it felt it felt the best in terms of shooting and driving like it felt the slickest um yeah, yeah really really good sort of the easiest gta but i think in its favor yeah for sure um, in terms of the tone, I do kind of agree with the tonal complaints a little bit, just because there is that bit where Trevor kills Johnny Klebitz from GTA uh, The Lost and Damned, and the game is kind of saying, oh, there's no room for, like, mopey emotional characters anymore. This is about, like, we'll look at wacky badass Trevor and how evil he is. And right. it's true that he is somewhat repulsive. But, um, yeah, did it bother me long term? Not really. This is the game where you could drive to the military base and steal a jet and fly off with it, and it's fucking ruled every single time you did it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, phenomenal game. Um, well, but Matthew, we did it. We got through our two top tens. Your back is no doubt dripping with sweat at this point. Oh. <laughs> sorry, I feel so bad for making you podcast. I'm so moist with nostalgia. I'm so sorry for making you podcast today. Oh, no, listen, we had to do it. Yeah, we did. This is how dedicated we are to the listener. Yeah, can't take a week off because people are paying, so we we have to just do it, <laughs> no matter how hot it is in the UK. Um, <laughs> any honourable mentions, Matthew? I've only got one, actually. Um, how about you? Have you got any? Uh, yeah, I had a couple. Um, I really did like Black Flag. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mainly because I realised that it had the incredibly overpowered uh, berserk darts. So, like, all the assassinations, I'd just get near enough to the target, hit them with a berserk dart. They'd try and kill their friends when they went mad, and then their friends would kill them. <laughs> so, like, that game's such a cakewalk. I, don't, I didn't assassinate hardly anyone. I just let them get killed by all their mates in self-defence. So that's a happy memory. I really liked the first chapter of The Wolf Among Us. Right, right. Uh, great setup, but I thought the rest of the episodes were dog shit, which is probably just like the game's way of saying you might just enjoy the world of the comic rather than this specific game. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I did think the art style was so striking for it, and the kind of like it was well written and stuff. But um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't go further than episode one. I never quite got. Uh, that far just, with it. it just like it really unraveled, and well, everything. It, just the pacing of it, it really sped up, and I was like, ah, yeah, no good. 
Um, yeah, I should probably mention Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. Um, so oh, yeah. <laughs> we have talked about this quite recently, of course. But like, um, you know, that I think if I had to pick one of the two games, 3D action games from this year, it has to be DMC um, because it has the kind of like vibrant level design that Revengeance does not, as it's taking you through lots of grey looking sort of like locations and boring places. Um, even though I still like the cutting up mechanic. I'd actually skipped Black Flag because I hated 3 so much. Just, 3 was not my kind of game and I just couldn't be bothered. But I felt like I kind of missed out in the end because people seemed to dig it so much. Um, I uh, also wanted to give a shout out to Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, is it? It was the f- yeah, yeah, right. first game um, from uh, with Joseph Farris' name on it, I believe. Really kind of emotional and quite sad, um, but really nicely done sort of little download game where you play as these two brothers um and they're moved individually with um, sticks on the controller uh just yeah i thought it was really good did you like that one matthew yeah yeah i did um i think it's slightly overshadowed by it's like bigger beats um like it's not mechanically too complicated i'd almost like to see more done with its kind of interesting control system but yeah i, I liked it yeah I almost went big up with a sued pick, Matthew, and I almost picked Earthbound, which came to Wii U in the UK oh. for the first time this year. But I couldn't bring myself to do that to you on a day as hot as this. Um, <laughs> even though I did really love, I did really love it and think, oh, I wish I'd played this when I was like eleven. Another thing I said on a previous episode. Um, any others from you? Uh, no, that's that's what I got. Any, any love for Arkham Origins? Uh... Nah, nah, not quite. <laughs> I completely the city, agree. The city was so like barren and and not fun to be in. Yeah, didn't quite do it for me that one, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But. Okay, good. Well, that's 2013, Matthew. Pretty comprehensive, I think. Um, like I say, it was sort of like I think there were just ten games I really liked, and then probably like five stragglers that were picked up in your list, and then mm. just yeah, an ocean of things I didn't care that much about. The kind of notably, I don't think they were like really any of the my games were like the next gen games from this year this just wasn't mm. wasn't what i was playing at the time but um but a good mix of like smaller stuff and big stuff for sure um yeah mm. really always uh, fun as ever man to hear your uh, your picks oh well hopefully i didn't misspeak horribly on anything if i did it was the heat so <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all good my friend so where can people find you on social media matthew Mr. Basil underscore Pest. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. The podcast is Backpage Pod on Twitter. Uh, find us there for, uh, you can find the, the Patreon link there if you want it, patreon.com slash Backpage Pod. A link to the Discord if you'd like to join our almost 500 person community talking about the podcast, games, and other things that I don't go into on the channels because they're about parenting or sports. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, thank you so much for anybody, everyone who backs us um, on the Patreon. We really appreciate it. Um, the next episode is about Xenoblade Chronicles. So um, Matthew's been playing a fierce amount of Xenoblade Chronicles 3. So um, we'll have Catherine on for that one as well. Should be a fun episode, Matthew. So um, Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, should be good. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.